Welcome to Can I Kick It? This is a podcast about film festivals. My name is Jesse Weber, and I am joined by Andy Germuga. <laughs> Number one anime stan, Colin Hatchley. Number two anime stan, Emilio Diaz. <laughs> All right. Uh, you and might we be are, able to imagine. Oh, go ahead, Emilio. And we are joined and, by... Uh, uh, yeah. Number zero anime stan, <laughs> Peter Bushman. Yeah, Great. returning guest, the triumphant return. returning guest, our, our number number, our second returning guest. Yeah, I was For excited to be number one, and then yeah. Sam <laughs> you got uh, sniped. You got sniped. Yeah, sniped me last week. Which, like, all power to him. Like, he deserves <laughs> it. But <laughs> I love to know that there's competition already. Yes. <laughs> to be fair, this episode was in the works before either appearance of Sam's. Um, yes. But uh, yeah, we're we're very happy to have you back. Um, talking uh, about an episode that uh, I think our first one that, that a guest pitched to us, right? Yeah, um, yes. you know, uh, Jesse said like, if anyone has an idea for an upcoming episode, let me know. And I DM'd him. I slid in like all gift field, and. <laughs> I uh, I said like, hey, could we talk about the history of Japanese animation at the Cannes Film Festival? Because I think there's a lot going on there. Um, and then that has initiated two of the craziest months in my life because <laughs> over the past two months, I've watched over 80 films. Because uh, not only did I watch what was required for today, but I watched the full filmographies of every director we're going to be wow. talking about. Jesus Christ. And and then, so to, to be clear, what was required for us was four films, one of which was 45 minutes long and two shorts. So yeah, it was a much exactly. different amount that we have collectively watched Five than months. what you have watched. Yeah. <laughs> um, So I am bursting out of the, you know, out of the gills with anime right now. <laughs> and just like hopefully i'll just be able to keep my my facts straight my yeah. points clear and not just uh, go on endless tangents and uh, diversions but we'll see yeah. we'll see that's always the operating phrase yes um should we get into it with the first short yeah absolutely yeah. so yeah i mean so yeah i guess the pitch is we're going to be discussing every film that was screened as part of one of the lineups at can yeah we have two shorts that were in uh the short what what's it called is it just called like the short palm door no clue um you know, <laughs> whatever the can shorts competition is we have two of those in the 20th century and then um in the 21st century we have four films in the director's Fortnite and a single anime film in the main competition and it is I, I think the most curious one from a directorial standpoint, right? Uh, yeah. I mean... It is called, oh. or at least in 1953, when I believe the first one played, it was just called the Short Film Competition. Okay. <laughs> well, Except right on French. the nose, huh? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Great. Short Film Competition. This, is, this is before... 
the uh, award was called the Palme d'Or, so they competed for the short film Grand Prix. Mm. Um, and then uh, animation had a very weird position in early can because at the first couple of cans you had a bunch of Disney movies showing at each one. I think you have a uh, fun and fancy free or make my music. It's one of the shorts compilations. And then yeah. Dumbo in 1947, like six years after Dumbo played in American theaters, um, which I guess might be like a post-war thing. And then Peter Pan plays in 1953. And then after that, uh, can realizes like hey why are we just having disney movies and giving them like a special award for best animated feature each time like why would we, you know like why would we have an award that only has one entrant yeah uh so they mostly get rid of animated features for the next 50 years there's usually like a handful each decade um, but there are usually like weirder movies like uh, there's in the 60s. There's this like Israeli stop motion uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat movie like Fantastic Planet in 1975. Oh, yeah. um, Fritz the Cat plays at the Critics Week and it's so well received that they do That's nine cool. lives of Fritz the Cat in the main competition which is just one of the worst animated films of all time um but yeah but we're talking about shorts here right yeah yes we have two to talk about and uh the first one is a kujira in 1953 which is by uh auteur indie animator uh noboru ufuji um if I can briefly introduce uh, the 1953 Cannes Film Festival, the uh, <laughs> as I said, the uh, the Palme d'Or does not exist at this point. It is called the Grand Prix, and it goes to The Wages of Fear oh. by Henri Georges Clouseau, who has already won the Golden Bear earlier this year for the same film and i believe will go on to win the golden lion for a different film making him one of the three directors with all three of the major awards also speaking of animation during the opening ceremony uh walt disney is awarded the legion of honor uh, what does that even mean? <laughs> I don't know. He got it's, knighted at Cannes. <laughs> it like sounds like like weirdly fascist, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, a little bit. Uh, um, yeah. It's uh, it, is that allowed? Like double dipping your films? That's probably something that doesn't yeah, go yeah, on yeah, anymore. Yeah, it was at this point. It was yeah. It was the fifties. I mean, like you know. Yeah, there's no rules. You know, dogs can play basketball. Exactly. Anything goes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, um. Airbud did win the palm dog. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but I think this short really exemplifies where the Japanese animation scene was at. Um, you know, starting in the 1920s and kind of going into the 1950s. Uh, most of Japan's animation was just by these single directors. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were largely were not 
uh, cell based because cells were expensive, right? Um, a lot of animation industries outside of the United States didn't really have the funds to be able to do uh, cell based movies on mass. So you only have a couple of cell films on uh, as kind of curiosities. Largely, it was cut out animation. You know, they were all inspired by Lottie Reiniger, uh, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. Um, however, in 1945, we have exactly one feature length cell animated film, which is <laughs> this little ditty called Momotaro's Divine Sea Warriors. Um, and it's this propaganda piece where it's all these really cute sea animals uh, saying like, oh boy, I can't wait to, you know, I can't wait to die for the emperor. Um, and it's kind of upsetting to watch, uh, <laughs> but Kinda. you know, it comes yeah. out in April, 1945. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, it's like Japan loses four months later. Right. So, um, and then afterwards there is not another feature length animated film for nearly 15 years um and so you have this period in between those two pinnacles in the mid 50s toei animation gets started and they create the first color animated uh feature film animated feature film the legend of white snake in 1958 um and so in between we have this color and they made a movie about a white snake (laughs) yeah yeah it's awesome um it's based off of an old chinese legend it's basically like what if you boned a white snake like what if a white snake was your pet and your girlfriend at the same time and you have all these priests who are like you can't do this this is illegal and then the protagonist is crying like you can't control my love gotta say i'm gonna side with the priests on this one (laughs) Uh, it actually got a prequel film, uh, a Chinese prequel film in 2019, which is supposed to be one of the best Chinese animated films of this decade. Wow. So I haven't seen that yet. Um, but yeah, so both of those films, uh, The Legend of White Snake and uh, Momotaro's Divine Sea Warriors, I bring them up because they have been shown at Cannes in the classics section. Okay in the last uh, five years retroactively. So I just wanted to make sure that both of those got their due as a part of animation history. But anyway, this is in between. This is when Japan's still rebuilding economically and you still have these single directors. And so Noboru Ofuji has this really interesting career, right? Um, Where he's trying to innovate on Lade Reiniger's uh, style and so the first thing he does is he invents an entirely new animation style where he uses sort of a, a Japanese traditional wrapping paper chiogami in order to cut out his uh, figures um, so you have these like black and white uh, cut out animation uh, which is just like with the most beautiful patterns you can imagine even though it's in black and white and then you know it's uh it's just like very striking and he could have stuck with this with his entire career but for kujira he pioneers yet another form of cutout animation and what he does here is by um uh cutting out colored cellophane right and putting it on a backdrop 
uh, light coming through. And so even though this is uh, a cutout animation, it has these really striking colors. Yeah, it's like uh, like kind of green, if I recall correctly. <laughs> yeah, this one is very heavily based on of the ocean waves, right? Yeah, uh, right? This is kind of early on. And then some of his later films, like uh, Phantom Ship, which plays pretty well at Venice in 1956 um is much more vibrant it sort of fully um you know encapsulates this concept and it's also worth a watch it's like 10 minutes long yeah yeah but Um, uh, now that i just like dumped the exposition (laughs) do you want to talk about the short itself yeah i mean so first i mean we should all say it is on youtube and we can maybe link to it from our twitter if you want to check it out um, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting. It's got, um, you know, it, it's, uh, got a lot of, uh, of style and it, 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 you definitely do feel like the adventure stuff, you know, because there's so much like about a whale and everything. It did make me think about Pinocchio in particular, um, and, and the, and the, and the, and the, the tradition of animated whales, um and yeah. and and, uh, and and great and and terrible like sea creatures uh yeah i mean yeah it's it's uh it's pretty good yeah yeah my my thought while uh while watching this film was that the whale has a very interesting mouth yeah. <laughs> honestly everyone in the short has the most interesting mouths everyone looks so jagged and wretched yeah because it's like there's like Go ahead. they're weird like thumbs that they punch that are like pointing downward and they're punching it's like they're all of the like i guess designs of the characters are very interesting to look at and consider even though there aren't many it's just like four pieces and then a whale that is most <laughs> yeah. of what the animation i guess there's also a ship that is most of what the animation is but they they play with them in very interesting things there's ways in which the light reveals certain at aspects and details of them that are pretty interesting that the short plays with yeah because it's like mostly in silhouette right like it's been a few weeks since i watched it yeah exactly basically um you know in this innovation on cutout animation like all the backgrounds are cellophane but kind of like the primary objects are traditional cut out so you know they're just jet black right because they are silhouettes but then everything else in the background is like uh, superbly detailed. Yeah, the water. I mean, yeah, that's like the big thing. Right? It's just the water like looks great still. Yeah, it's like the yeah. water and then the clouds like yeah superimposing on the sort of sky and then like the sort of rain and thunder that he manages to conjure in through the use of like the cellophane and the cutouts is all very interesting to look at. It's yeah. like a slight short. It's eight minutes long, right? Yeah. yeah, the plot's pretty simple. Basically, there's a ship with a bunch of people on it, and then it gets uh, sunk by a giant whale with the huge chompers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, like, you know, the only survivors are a couple of men and one woman, and, like, these men, you know, who I guess they sort of sense that death is on the line, they sort of use the last of their energies to try to assault this poor woman and a lot of the short is her running away and screaming 
while these guys kind of like chase after her but like the entire time the whale is trying to eat them so they like get like devoured up by the whale they like end up on the whale's uh back and like they keep chasing her like please like just focus on not dying <laughs> yeah. it's it's so horrible um yeah, okay. and then at the end she turns into a mermaid <laughs> sure. yeah. Yeah. Uh, true. I, I mean if there's anything indicative about the human experience it's uh <laughs> yeah, people would yeah, rather yeah, yeah. be horny than help themselves <laughs> um yeah it, it's 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 very striking visually is most yeah. of what I have to say about it. It's very cool. I guess most of what I thought about it, is, it seemed very, I guess this is the consequence of it being cut out. So it seemed very puppet showy to me. Like right. how you said, most of the, most of what the, and the short is, is just like the woman running and then the guys running after her and just like back and forth on like a 2D plane. It's that sort of stuff. very interesting that you say that because um, a lot of this early Japanese cutout animation owes a lot to Kamishibai, which is sort of a traditional Japanese shadow puppet theater. Um, so yeah, it's definitely uh, continuing on in that tradition. Yep. Yeah. Can we go to our second short now while we're in the short space? Uh, yeah, sure. Oh, I, I do want to add... Um, uh, Noboru Ofuji uh, dies in uh, 1961. He actually has another film that plays at Cannes in 1952, which is this in-progress film that he made about the life of the Buddha called, I think it's called The Life of Sakyamuni or something, but I couldn't find any copy of it online, even in Japanese web space. Mm -hmm. uh no no physical media it was very frustrating to me but um you know upon his death uh his sister creates the Noboro Ofuji prize which is the most uh prestigious award in Japanese animation wow um hmm. uh at the Mainichi Film Awards they award a separate Noboro uh Ofuji award and the thing is uh what it um you know what it appreciates is not necessarily like just like the best movie it's specifically the best animation it rewards people who go out of their way to try to innovate upon the very form of innovate of animation itself right like uh Noboro Ofuji did multiple times um so it's like it's very telling that you know, even like Miyazaki's greatest films, arguably stuff like Spirited Away, doesn't win the award, right? Uh, but his more experimental animation, like Ponyo, does. Yeah, I mean that's win. what I thought of while watching Kujira was the water in Ponyo, which is like one of like the best things ever put in a movie, and it's yeah, like easily the best water in any animation, right? Yeah, yeah. but yeah, it was I, I, it was something that was definitely on my mind. That's cool that, yeah, that that is a cool award. I did not know about that. Yeah, and if we want to talk about this from, like, a sort of can perspective, I think, like, an easy way to, like, determine the sort of things that get positioned and played at can are just, like, very director-focused, people who have some sort of international respect that they want to honor by bringing on to the film festival. And while that might, I guess, might be a more modern perspective, I don't, I'm not fully aware of, the like, the politics of 1950 there or Yeah, You could see how somebody with that much respect for innovating in the film space and in the animated film space in Japan could have gotten something through to the festival in that way. Uh, did we 
So did they give out a, a winner for that short slate that year? Um, they did. I don't remember what it is. Do you have it up, Jesse? I did a moment ago, and I will again <laughs> I, in another moment. It a lot is... of Japanese sources will tell you that uh, Kujiro won, like, quote-unquote, the second-place prize. Except the thing is, there isn't any second-place <laughs> prize, right? So, like, you have no idea where that uh, rumor originated from. The uh, the short film Grand Prix went to a French short by Albert Lamoris uh, called White Mane, which is based on a children's book of the same title and appears to be about horses. <laughs> Sounds like a real turd. <laughs> Plot what? twist. It's not about horses. <laughs> I'm sure so, it's very nice. Oh boy. <laughs> Mr. Horses Gurmugo. I'm not yeah. even a horse fan. I'm afraid of horses, but like, Jesus. Andy uh, has just been waiting to talk about Dream Horse uh, ever since Dream we started horse? our podcast. The Tony Collette movie? You don't remember Dream Horse? I do not know. I'm sorry. Dream Horse sounds awesome. I want to watch Dream Horse. I can talk about it was War a big, Horse. Uh, it was a big Twitter thing this year. Oh, sh- oh, I think I vaguely remember that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, uh, our next short, the, um, jumping narration in ink. Hold on, hold on, <laughs> white mane. We're gonna sit on this moment. You called it a turd. Now you get this. For the English version of White Mane, co-written by James Agee. Wowzers! Wow. <laughs> yeah. Here's where the editor anyway. will drop in. Uh, damn son, where'd you find this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gunshot. Exactly. Gunshot. <laughs> Fun facts. All right, we can right, move on. Moving forward. <laughs> um, okay, so thirty years pass. Uh, like I said, not there's much like happens the in the world. Occasional, yeah, 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 yeah. Not, not much happens. There's the occasional animated film, um, but it's usually like it usually has to be weird or French or both. Um, <laughs> interestingly, around 1980 in two separate competitions we have two out of competition chinese animated films uh seemingly put in to celebrate the end of the cultural revolution um because you have havoc in heaven from uh 1965 and then nudja conquers the dragon king from 1979 and both of those or I think that's in like 1980 and 1981 or something those are also like two of the greatest uh, like the most uh, j- j- superb, you know, the most sublime Chinese animated films. So uh, they're they're well worth the inclusion, right? Um, but then in 1985, we have a uh, jumping, a new short directed by, well, directed in kind of air quotes, but directed by Osamu Tezuka, which you can't read in the credits because it is jumping. <laughs> in the, the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can't read this. It is too, moving too quickly for me to focus on it. Yeah, it's like the the credits like <laughs> jump as yeah. as in the same style as the protagonist. Um uh Tezuka has a lot of context. I guess I guess the big question up front is like how familiar are you guys with Osamu Tezuka in his Zero. sort of 
Zero. Ufra. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be zeros across the board on this one. Huh? Yeah, I've so seen jumping. <laughs> o- Osamu Tezuka is simultaneously the most influential manga artist and wow. the most influential animator in probably Japanese history. Um, because, uh, you know, he's just... I'm trying so hard not to geek out about Tezuka right now. He's pretty much like my favorite creative. Uh, all of his stuff is so sublime. I, I keep using that word, but it's true. Um, I you're probably most gonna be most familiar with like Astro Boy, right? Okay, yeah. The likes yeah. of Kimba the White Lion, um, maybe Blackjack. Uh, but the thing is, he's uh, he sort of makes a name for himself in kind of the 50s uh, as just this workhorse. He's this guy who is uh, creating like eight different comics for eight different magazines simultaneously. And in an age where most people max out at like two manga ongoing at the same time, it's just utterly crazy how much work he did. Um, and he does so much work so that he can single-handedly create an animation studio with the funds that he privately raises just from uh, all of this. Um, uh, Tezuka is noted for kind of popularizing the wide-eyed look that is uh, pretty much omnipresent in anime today. He basically... Uh, when he saw Bambi in theaters, he was so moved by it. He saw it like over 40 times. Wow. Uh, he would just like go to the movie again and again and not just like watch the film, but watch everyone in the theater and sort of observe how, uh, you know, how they reacted to the movie. And that sort of impacts, um, you know, what he creates. But anyway, on the front of animation, in the early 60s as i mentioned earlier you have toei animation which is sort of a big studio that does yearly animated theatrical color films you know they're sort of the the disney right of japan in this time period in the 60s and at toei you know you have young miyazaki young takahata all these other people who end up becoming like really big directors sort of uh honing their craft but uh tezuka saw this and then he realized that like if japanese animation wants to approach that of american animation they're also going to need uh television right um and so what he did is he wanted to uh create you know, he wanted to be able to take Japanese animation and simplify it to a degree that it could be aired weekly on television, you know, utilizing a lot of techniques from Hanna-Barbera and um, uh, uh, other sort of American TV animation studios that had recently risen. Um, So he, you know, Astro Boy is their very first show it's the production of it is absolutely insane Hmm. uh like they're animating it like on a south park level right they're animating (laughs) each episode in the the week week before it airs uh which you know normally an anime episode takes like two months to produce (laughs) or something right to go through all the stops um but you know it's a huge hit um and he sort of single-handedly starts the television 
uh, industry, animation industry. Um, but at the same time, he's doing all these sorts of experimental films because, like, you know, Norboro Ofuji, he wants to expand what animation means, like, even beyond what is uh, being done in the United States. Um, so he does lots of uh, experimental shorts in the 60s. Uh, but then in the late 60s, he sort of unveils his magnum opuses. He announces this trilogy of uh, adult-oriented feature-length experimental films, uh, where it's like, I'm going to make animated erotic thrillers for mm -hmm. adults, which is a crazy idea that, you know, um, like the Walt Disney of Japan would do this, but he makes like a thousand and one Arabian Nights. He okay. makes... Um, uh, Cleopatra Queen of Sex as it is titled in the United States they're not good movies but they're deeply interesting right because they throw in every single idea that they have regardless of how good it is um, he divests from the company in the early 70s in order to focus more on his uh, comics work um, and then uh, so he has very little involvement with the third movie, which is Belladonna of Sadness. Uh, and then Belladonna okay. of Sadness ends up being like one of the greatest movies ever made in my mind, um, which it plays at Berlin in 1974, but I, it didn't seem to make much of a splash. It was so expensive that it puts the company Mushi Productions out of business um, they're driven to bankruptcy by Belladonna of Sadness, which is pretty tragic. Um, and then Belladonna of Sadness is pretty much lost for 40 years until it's kind of been rediscovered and restored in the 2010s, right? Um, but then in the early 80s, uh, Tezuka decides to get back into animation. And so jumping is sort of made as, you know, it's basically an I'm back movie. <laughs> um his uh his new production company which is just called tezuka productions uh animates this film in 1980 called uh space firebird uh 2772 which is based off of um uh, uh tezuka's phoenix manga you know one of my favorite stories of all time seriously but uh in that movie there is this fascinating shot it's a minute long where you have this car going down a cyber highway and then the the frame of the animation zooms in through the cityscape down into the car to show the people who are in it and then it pulls back out um you know to reestablish the landscape and because it is zooming in and out it requires them to animate every single frame right yeah. from scratch with no backgrounds mm -hmm. and yes. the positive reception of that single 50 second shot is what inspired jumping mm -hmm. um, that makes a lot of sense because Tezuka says like okay this is awesome I want to do this for 7 minutes now instead right. of just <laughs> 50 seconds it, yeah. it should be noted that even though you know Tezuka quote unquote directs this like he directs all of these movies in like the Wes Anderson way where he kind of like tells them what to do, but he's not actually doing the animation himself, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. sure. But, 
So I, I just want to give a shout out to, I need to look up his name because I keep forgetting. Uh, okay, uh, Junji Kobayashi. Junji Kobayashi is the guy who did that 52nd uh, Space Firebird 2772 shot. And he's the guy who spent two and a half years actually animating every single frame wow. of jumping. Um, That's crazy. So, uh, again, now that that context dump is done. <laughs> so jumping is a pretty uh, astounding work of animation, I would say. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's incredibly striking. You are... It's like the sort of thing where, where you watch it and you're like, wow, why hasn't anybody done this? And then hearing this, it's like, oh, of course nobody's right. ever it's done so this. much work. So much work. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. I Yeah, I think it's good. It, it's, it definitely, like at moments feels more like a like a like a flex sort of like show off thing yeah than like definitely a, it's, it's a like, real good flex right yeah, i'm the like only that. person who has the resources to be ever be able to craft this right yeah um yeah but it's it's good i mean yeah there's it, i mean i guess the premise is like you are from the perspective of the main character who is jumping and the jumps get increasingly large and fantastical mm-hmm. Um, so that eventually you are like jumping like up above the whole planet and like landing in completely different continents is basically yeah. the premise. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a few there's a few like little jokes. One like one at one point you like land in some lady's backyard and she's naked and she runs away. Uh, one of them is pretty racist where you land and there's a couple of like black like African yeah he like, like lands in like a tribal yeah village which is like eating a you know a tied up white helmeted archaeologist or whatever right um Uh. yeah but like yeah it's i mean it it takes that premise and really like explores every nook and cranny of it and is like the whole time is like you you're like wow it, it i can't i can't imagine how hard this was to like sit down and draw <laughs> like i yeah. can't i can't even imagine how yeah, much to like, emphasize for the listeners um like the whole premise of this is you know animation animation cell animation is built entirely on backgrounds right mm-hmm. by having backgrounds and then doing cells over it you don't have to redraw the background every time yeah right. um that's you know that's the number one uh cost cutting measure that basically makes animation viable as a medium mm-hmm. but because the perspective is constantly changing yeah. of like jumping up and down every single portion of every single frame needs to be redrawn every Each single time. frame yeah. right yeah, yeah. Uh, um it's, yes. it's yeah it's really it's insane yeah, it's like it is something that would be much much easier to do with computer animation. Right. Oh, sure, definitely. Yeah. But then I so, think so. It, it like it. It is like this is it, it is a very strange thing to just like see something that you would think is only possible with computer animation done in uh, traditional animation stuff. Yeah, there's like a, a breathing in like in my brain certainly at the beginning where it's like. I, it like reads as like a computer a piece of computer animation it reads as like this is a 3d world and somebody is just like shifting mm-hmm. a camera around yeah but then like yeah thinking about like right. no somebody just drew all of this is yeah insane mm-hmm. i mean yeah, yeah the closest is yeah is like is like a demo of like a 3d like 
animated world or whatever. Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I think we'll get into it more as we go deeper on these movies, just based on how they are animated. But it's something that like I don't even like. I obviously don't know what computer animation was at the time, if it even was a thing at the time. Obviously, um, but it's uh, it's pretty much non-existent, right? Yeah. That's sort of what yeah. you know, The Little Mermaid. That's why it's such a technological blockbuster. Is that's what sort of Starts introduces like these computers going on with computer animation yeah. in the 80s, but like, but it's not being used for like it's uh, something that uh, mainstream film certainly that would like it ages better because it's hand drawn like mm-hmm. something like yes. at the time like uh, we'll get into it when we get to Ghost in the Shell two uh, there's like three <laughs> yeah. animation shots and that that like some of them are cool but then some of them just are kind of like handicapped by how things have aged and that it just doesn't look as good as like the hand-drawn parts and then jumping being this thing that is such like a technical achievement on a hand-drawn level it like just makes it that much better and makes it that much like in a perspective like where it could be like done in a second now probably today it looks better than anything that like could be done like that today yeah certainly um, I think I saw you uh, on Letterbox colon say that yeah. this was couch gag personified. Yeah, I, yeah. maybe uh, a bit reductive. <laughs> I said it like, feels like no, a couch no, gag. Well, because like you know, like your review said, and like Andy said, they, uh, you know, there's a lot of gags in this, and yeah. you know, I watched this interview with Tezuka about the short, and he said that like you know he the, what he was aiming for was pops of laughter, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. So it's like he kept saying, like, okay, you gotta include more jokes. Right. So poor uh <laughs> poor Kobayashi kun. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Hand trembling. Yeah. It's like the uh, yes honey meme. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I mean it's like with without but without the gags, then it's just purely a tech demo. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's really just like, hey, we can do this, but the pop is the like gags and the pops that you want to include or what make it sort of hold together as a thing that just beyond the initial impressiveness also has some like energy and some spark to it that makes it sort of rewatchable and sort of like sort of looking at the things you might have missed a couple of times and yeah it's yeah. very good mm-hmm. yeah, also good. also on youtube yeah. yeah uh yeah all right um uh do you guys want to move on to... We should. We have four full-length <laughs> movies left to go. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, oh, oh, five yeah, movies. Yeah. yeah, okay, so... um, All is quiet on the Western Front for the next 15 years until a little movie comes out called Spirited Away, right? Um, we can Ooh. easily think of international distribution of Japanese animation in terms of pre-spirited away and post-spirited away, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because uh, I mentioned Berlin earlier. Berlin has a Belladonna of Sadness in 1974, Mm -hmm. and then in 2002, they have Spirited Away, a full nine months after it is released in Japanese theaters, and it wins the golden bear along with something else what's yeah. the other thing uh is? bloody we sunday might, uh, we might be talking about it on a future episode yes nice. <laughs> um and so that opens the floodgates right yeah. um those to date those are the only two anime the that have been uh at berlin 
Wow. A belladonna of sadness and spirited away, which I think is just mm-hmm. wow. That uh, yeah. talk about two for two, right? Um, <laughs> and so, you know, spirit away becomes this global phenomenon. And then the fact that we suddenly have two Japanese animated films in 2003 and then one in main competition in 2004 is easily a response to that, right? It seems yeah. to be Can trying to get in on the action, um, trying to get maybe some of the same uh, uh, same love, but uh, a different festival is the mm-hmm. one to actually successfully pull that off, uh, you know, foreshadowing. Um, but yeah, in uh, 2003, we have a double feature at uh, at the director's fortnight. We have uh, Nasu, a summer, uh, summer in Andalusia, and then like three days later, they showed Interstellar. Well, okay, here's an here's a question <laughs> I wanted to have uh, for you guys. Oh, how how did you pronounce this movie? I say Interstellar five 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 five. I just say Interstellar. <laughs> yeah, I think I've mostly been just saying say Interstellar. Interstellar yeah. Quadruple Five. Yeah, because like I, I in high school I was pretty insistent on calling it uh, Interstellar. You know, five 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 five. The story of the secret star system. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but um, I guess this is uh, spoiling it a little bit. But it turns out the way you're supposed to pronounce it is Interstellar Four Five. Uh, because that's a shout out to Leiji Matsumoto's uh, Galaxy Express 3.9, which is what, you know, the movie is riffing off of. Um, but we could talk about that later. <laughs> Let's yeah. talk about Nasu, A Summer in Andalusia. Uh, very fun movie, I think. I was surprised by this one. I had a good time with it. Yeah, it's uh, I, it's the last one I watched. And especially, I watched it after back-to-backing Ghosts in the Shells. I will say it was refreshing. <laughs> Just to light it. Yeah, it's like oh. very straightforward, which I think yeah, I, I appreciate. Light, yes. Straightforward sports anime after contemplating what humanity means for like three hours, and yeah, it. I can sort of. It's. I mean, do you want to go into explaining uh, what the plot is, or yeah. I can do it also? I'll, I'm, I'm going to give quick director context. This will be quicker <laughs> than the other guys, because it's not like, you know, not everyone has a Tezuka-length career. Right. <laughs> um, this is directed by a guy named uh, Kitaro Kosaka, who is um, kind of one of the big key animators in the... Uh, you know in the anime industry he's basically he's mostly a ghibli guy but he's gone back like he worked on takahata's films even in the early 80s like chie the brat um i'm looking at his uh, credits right now he worked on dagger of kamui which is a rintaro joint he worked on royal space force the wings of Honeamis, which is like gainax's first film that's like you know the first thing that uh uh, Hideaki Anno worked on um okay. you know he worked on Grave of the Fireflies he worked on yeah. Akira Poem Poco Whisper of the Heart Princess Mononoke um Spirited Away Metropolis uh basically he works on almost every single anime film of note yeah, he's all over the place <laughs> over yep. the previous two decades but this is specifically kind of a uh 
blank check that he earns as kind of the head animator on Spirited Away. Okay. Um, so he is... This is sort of seen... This is animated by Studio Madhouse, which is kind of one of the most um, prestigious non-Ghibli studios, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're known for just lots of, uh, you know, solid animation, both in their movie and TV projects. But this is sort of seen as an unofficial Ghibli joint because even though you know this is this is basically done by an ex ghibli guy in the ghibli art style it's a different style than the original manga and um the film was initiated by hayao miyazaki because he went to kosaka and just gave him a copy of the manga and said wouldn't this make a great movie you should read it uh but miyazaki doesn't actually have any uh ties to this film specifically besides Mm -hmm. Uh, recommending the source material yeah um go ahead i was just say so it's a movie about uh you know the small town in spain where like a local like hometown hero is doing uh, a bike race and is going through and it's like he's going through at this uh he's gonna like pass in front of this shop that is like family owned or friend of the family owned uh and his brother is getting married the same day to his, like, ex-girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he, like, finds out that the company he's, like, racing for and sponsored by is going to drop him. Uh, and it's just, like, him trying to, like, win this race, like, on his own merits, basically. And it's really, I think, yeah, it's, like, very light, like we were saying. It's a quick watch. I think you can watch it, it's like, on It's 45 minutes long. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. remarkable. More movies should be 45 yeah. minutes long. I mean, yeah. It's, and yeah. it's like, uh, you know, it's a bike race movie. It's like very summery and like breezy. It was just like a yeah. very <laughs> chill yeah. movie. And I was just going to say, yeah, it's like the setting is interesting. It's like, obviously due to the title, it's set in Andalusia, which is like this sort of whiny region of Spain yeah. that that is... Uh, you know, not not very city based, but it has a nice. Yeah, there's it like it looks nice. It feels good. They um, pause the action to just like do a flamenco for three minutes. You know, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, eat pickled eggplants. Right. There's a lot of business with the restaurant. Um, yeah. So nasu is uh, the Japanese word for eggplant, and that's the okay. premise of the original manga. The original manga was an anthology. Of all these like interrelated characters and stories, and the only thing that really ties them together is that eggplants figure into them <laughs> somehow. Sure. Like a lot of it is about like eggplant farming in rural Japan, but there's like a story of, you know, like, you know, two Edo period samurai who are trying to like smuggle eggplants even though it's against the law because they're out of season. Um uh, and then, you know, this, uh, you know, this was a two-parter. Uh, it was two chapters long. Um, and a pretty, it gets pretty faithfully adapted. The only big addition that I noticed was the inclusion of those X-ray specs, which are oh, yeah. nowhere to be found in the manga. I have no idea <laughs> what the impetus behind those is. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> just a guy who's got the goggles <laughs> and then someone else takes them from him. It's good. Yeah, there's just this guy who has like these like super, you know, these super 80s uh, yeah. 
Woody Harrelson. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's the sort of goggles that somebody saying I'm jacking in would wear. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. They're Johnny Mnemonic. You're a mnemonic. Yeah. 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 The, uh, and I, I guess, like, beyond what, that it was just, like, a head animator for Spirited Away who got a sort of blank check to make this anime, I wonder if just, like, the sport connection was the other thing that made them let it into can. Like, obviously, the Tour right. de France is a big thing in Yeah, Yeah, France. it's all right. It's very European. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's... I, I, it's it's remarkable. I wish there were more movies like this, right? Because there, there are certainly a lot of anime films that are set in kind of like a, a simulacra of Europe, you know, like yeah, Kiki yeah. or Porco Howl's Rosso. Moving Castle. But there are so few that are literally set in just right present yeah. time, present. Uh, a bunch of know, Spanish people be, speaking yeah. Japanese. Just it was in, something yeah. I was thinking about. I was. I like would be interested in more like just using anime as like the art form to make a movie like in any other setting you know like most I, I mean I have I'm very like uh like an anime neophyte so I could just be talking like completely out of my ass here but I feel like it is mostly set like where it's animated <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, I think it depends. I think tastes have changed. Like, if you look at stuff from the 80s and 90s, it's almost entirely fantastic. Because well, yeah, anime also, is largely yes. being produced by sci-fi nerds. Exactly. Right? Yeah. That's, um, yeah, maybe that's the other thing. <laughs> but the current taste is for, like, school stories, you know, like teen romances set in contemporary Japan. Um, which those are fine and all, but I wish there was more diversity outside of that in the current scene. Um, yeah, there's a a part in it that I really was very into, which is like as this race is sort of culminating, and they're like right at the end, and it's like four of the people who we've been sort of following throughout this race are like neck and neck going to cross the finish line, and they're like pedaling so fast that the animation like they like stylistically uh make it look like it's just blurring and it's just like faces like uh you know like intense faces as they're like pushing through and like it loses all sort of um you know distinct outline as like as it has been and it uh it was very cool very into that sort of so, style yeah, of, like, sort of does make, it made me think of like obviously sports anime is a big genre there's a lot of stuff like this of like well, I need to win this thing. That I imagine, I guess I'm not that much of a historian. I imagine you could trace back to like Speed Racer, which is like the animation, which is like the sort right. of thing that I thought about while watching this. And like, yeah. a guy needs to win and he's getting information about why he needs to win more. As the right, yeah, I, yeah, I thought about that too. Yeah, the, the, the whole team dynamic within like an individual athletic activity. Uh, was sort of, yeah a connection that I I drew there yeah I mean yeah it, I I I I real I don't know a lot about anime I really don't know a lot about bike racing uh, there is like they use a lot of like bike racing terminology and like strategy what I loved stuff. about this is that it just like inculcates you into yeah. 
the world of bike racing like before i saw this for the first time i knew nothing about bike racing and then i felt like i had a pretty good grasp on it yeah they i think they they use like yeah a lot of the vocabulary and stuff very well you get a sense of like well there's typically like like the big mass of people and then the people who try to like break away and those people like have to have the stamina to remain in front because otherwise you're not like drifting off of other people and all that sort of thing you do get a real sense for like the science of it Um, yeah it's crazy how um it's it's simultaneously competitive and collaborative right right um yeah yes and yeah and yeah i don't quite understand like how teams really work in like bike racing like but uh yeah i think i think the end score of a team it's like an average yes of everyone on your team sure and so the thing is you need to have you need to have some guys kind of like sacrifice getting in first place just to make sure that the average for the team like so it's like you know it's like you might have one guy who ends up getting in the top rungs but then you need to have the other three guys back in the peloton supporting him right right but ensuring that they're towards the front of it right so that uh you know they they get good marks and they yeah. go into it a bit in the movie where like the once they are like telling you know sort of the lead guy that he needs to let the other dude win that's part of his team that there's like the element of like dr- letting them draft off of you right and like sort of playing that game within the you know within the group and like letting them uh you know working together in that way and then like you know yeah. have that guy speed up and get the dub right and I did, yeah, also really appreciated the way they used, like, yeah, the the location of, like, and, like, the character who knows the, the land and the location and versus the yeah. rest of the characters who don't and that sort of thing, um, I think is, is, is a uh, fun thematic stuff in the, in the, in the material. Yeah, the, the themes of community are quite beautiful in this, right? Yeah. yeah. It just makes you wish that, like, oh, man, I wish I could be eating pickled eggplants with those oh, guys. Yeah. Just, like, living in a sleepy village. And, yeah, and then, like, when they're all at the bar afterwards, and he's like, this is how you do it, and, like, knocks it back with the wine. Right. It's yeah. all very cool. And then, same year, at Cannes, Interstellar. Yeah, Interstellar, which is the the Daft Punk anime. Yes. The coolest. <laughs> this is where we yell at Andy for hating Daft Punk. <laughs> I... I oh. Do not hate. I do not hate Daft Punk. That is not my position that I am taking. How dare you? You, I mean, look. You've been rude in the past, is all I'll say. Been rude. Thomas and Gimon don't deserve this. <laughs> wow. I think they're, they're great doing pronunciation. Okay. I think, you know, th- they I've seem I've seen fine. Eden multiple times. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to get into that again. Oh, Check off, I'm sure it'll come up. <laughs> check off Cullen Mentions Eaton on your sicky bingo cards, Look. everybody. Yeah. So uh, uh, I imagine you have some context uh, yeah, on the anime so... side. I, uh, I did my own Daft Punk research on my side as a big lover of Daft Punk. Nice. I, get, I guess the, like, the, where it collides is just Daft Punk are big ner- anime, anime and movie nerd, and they were a big fan of this guy named Leiji Matsumoto. Yeah, so, um, yeah, they, they're they the ones who came up with the idea, right? Like, from what I could figure out, Emilio, and maybe you can back this up or disagree, it seems that uh, they were drafting uh, Guy and 
I don't know how to pronounce their names. Um, Toma and Guillaume. Yeah, Toma and Guillaume um, were drafting this as they were creating Discovery, right? Yeah, I guess it's like... The outline. They were creating the outline, I mean. I guess it's like a sort of thing they were imagining while making the music. I don't know if it fact like they factored in any like narrative into the album as much as just like when they made that when they imagined the sort of story and the sort of imagery that they wanted to go along with the album. This is a sort of thing they had on their mind. And then they got a friend of theirs to like write a script around what the the music that they had produced. I don't, like I don't, like I guess what I'm saying is I don't know if it factored into the music they were making, but it is a thing that they had on their mind. Yeah. So they go to Leiji Matsumoto, who is basically retired, you know, doing the occasional, um, you know, manga series, but you know, basically out of the game. And they pitch the concept to him, and he says like, "Yeah, sure, okay." Um, and so Leiji Matsumoto is kind of one of the most important names in Japanese science fiction, right? Uh, it should be noted that he's not really an animator. He's a mangaka. You know, he uh, crafted all these like really classic space operas. He's like the father of the Japanese space opera. He does stuff like Galaxy Express 3-9, which is just like, what if there was a train in space? Mm-hmm. Uh captain harlock which is what if there was a space pirate in space um he does a space battleship yamato which is and i guess is that what if there was a battleship in space (laughs) no actually more crazy than this okay sidebar on yamato the yamato the u.s not ussss i don't know what the japanese initials would be but the yamato is the biggest battleship ever crafted in history it was created prior to the second world war by imperial japanese forces um throughout the entire pacific conflict they kept holding the yamato back as their final weapon right because it was so big so imposing so powerful that you know like once they unleashed it you know basically it would be the trump card to defeat any battle that the allies would participate in you know battle of okinawa which is pretty much like the final battle of the war right um the allies are on japan's doorstep so they say this is it we're going to unleash the yamato the yamato starts sailing into position and then it is immediately sunk by a u.s submarine (laughs) it does not like it doesn't it does nothing in the war and so space battleship Yamato is it's basically Japanese Battlestar Galactica right where like oh you know the earth is being destroyed by these aliens and our only hope is to fly through outer space to find us a new homeland and and instead of just building a spaceship they resurrect this derelict (laughs) sunken world war ii battleship give it thrusters and now it's humanity's last resort it's just like it's it came out in 1979 right which is sort of like the last gasp of like japanese uber nationalism um so that's really fun anyway 
Anyway, sidebar. So he's like one of the biggest name at 70s and 80s uh, science fiction, even though he's not doing a lot of actual directing, except for like maybe the original season of Space Battleship Yamato. Uh, but, you know, um, Daft Punk goes to him and they say, like, we watched Captain Harlock in, you know, when we were growing up, you know, we love your stuff so much. Like, could you direct it for us? But the thing is, I... I think it's very telling that I, I think he's really directing this in name only. I think it's more that he's doing the character designs, his very distinctive character designs. He has like the most distinctive character designs in, you know, all of Japanese visual culture. And I say that in the fact that mostly his women, because he only has one female character design, which is mm. tall, wide hip weepy-eyed blondes sure. um like if you My look kind of guy yeah <laughs> 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 come on not that kind of show it <laughs> <laughs> was uh, an easy layup if you like if you look at um you know like maytail from a galaxy express 39 or like emeraldus from captain harlock they're literally all just like the same woman as stella it's pretty hilarious i guess they don't have blue skin right that's the one difference the i'm out she doesn't even for the whole time yeah (laughs) yeah the the guy who is actually doing the uh direction here i think like the actual day-to-day direction is this guy named kazuhisa takenochi who is just a journeyman he's not you know he's he's not an auteur right like up until this point he had really only wait was this animated by toei yeah that makes sense because up until now he had only done like toei projects he directed an okay-ish dragon ball movie in an okay-ish one piece movie that's it right so this is just this is just another paycheck for him um and I think out of all the movies we watch today, as a result, this is the most bland from an animation standpoint. Like, it's serviceable, but, you know, it doesn't really hold up that well, especially in comparison to literally anything else we watch today. Yeah, that, was... yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, that might be... Um... I definitely... Huh, that's interesting. I liked it a lot, but I think it's just because I just like the music so much. Um, yeah, like I un- until I rewatched it just now, I had it at five stars on Letterbox. Like literally in high school, I was like, hanging out with new people, like, "Hey, do you want to watch it? There's, it's a Daft Punk anime." Yeah, like, that's like Whoa. Uh, when I watched it, I like when it was brought up as like the thing we were going to watch. I did not know what it was, and then Emilio told me, he was like, yeah, it's a Daft Punk musical. I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And then I didn't even realize, like, until I watched it, that it was just, like, a visual album almost, like, all set to music, like, no real, uh, you know, there's no dialogue. There's, like, very minimal sound effects. And then as I was watching it, uh, I think when they get to, like, harder, better, faster, stronger, I was like, oh, I've seen this before. Just yeah. this clip, like I've oh, I've seen it as that music video. The first twenty minutes of the movie were like unleashed in chunks as the music videos for, okay. uh, you know the you know 
the singles of that album yeah. in its initial release cycle. And when, when is it? The about? album also comes out in 01. Yeah. So it seems that, like, it, it seems like by the time, you know, the album actually drops, they had, like, got the first, like, third done, right? Yeah. Um, but it takes them two years to actually yeah, finish yeah, the rest. Yeah, because Undersella is 03, yes, that's right. Um, and yeah, I mean, I I think, like, uh, you know, just of my letterbox, whatever, like, I said that the floor, like, was pretty high. Just, like, it's a visualization of, like, a great album that I could listen to, like, forever. <laughs> like, I have no qualms with just, like, watching, like, you know, fairly, like, standard animation-looking you know, like space adventure for the most part. And yeah. like, I'm listening to just like hit after hit after hit. What um, if there was a guitar rocket ship in space? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's got a great bit of Daft Punk being in it. They, it's so cruel. They show up in this movie only to lose the Grammy yes. to their own to their song. Own song. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I'm sure there is some, like, exhaustive, like, explanation of, like, what is different about them in that world uh, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. someone has, like, fan-theoried out about um, uh, what is, you know, what, what, the, what they're nominated for and what they have done in that world that is not, um, you know, present in the, uh, in, in our real world. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, so... I um are we still my I guess yeah my my sort of reaction to this uh is to uh is like yeah th- th- I think the first half I'm pretty into and like can follow along with it gets a little like repetitive to me and like I am not as engaged by the the second half um uh I sort of thought a lot about it I I mentioned this like when I was like first starting to watch it uh in in our group uh chat but uh, it made me think a lot about, like, Fantasia uh, and, mm, like, the, yeah. the art of, like, telling stories, like, set solely to music. Um, and I do, like, wonder, like, I think personally for me that, like, the runtime of, like, a Fantasia segment of, like, a, a pe- an extended piece of classical music that's, like, between, like, 7 and 25 minutes long or whatever is, like, more... I'm more into that with, with these sort of things. And I feel like the, the hour-long uh, with, with the sort of... The, that 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 one piece of music um, uh, is a little more trying for me, but yeah, I think I think there's 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 some interesting stuff in this one. There are definitely yeah, I mean, places. I, oh, oh uh, I I I don't love it either. I don't know if I, agree. I I like the concept, and I don't necessarily agree that like the time is the issue. I just think it happens to not be the most interesting narrative and like in general i think my my thing which i also said on letterboxd is like it is i like the idea of like a full visual album like done in animation i just don't really like any of the elements that are being put into this i don't think it's that interesting a narrative i don't think it looks super interesting uh, with the exception of a couple of songs, it's like not really my type of music. I think <laughs> that, I think that, uh, as I've said, uh, "Digital Love" and "One More Time" would be uh, superb songs were they not sung by robots. Insane. <laughs> <laughs> 
Digital Love, one of like the best. Well, songs. in this movie, they aren't sung by robots. They're sung by aliens. I, but but they sound like robots. How do you know I mean, what an alien? What's wrong with like? aliens using vocoder? Yeah. <laughs> Are you anti T pain also? <laughs> I don't think that this movie is trying to suggest that what we are hearing is what we're looking at. Still, I think I it think is. A, they're they're whole, occasionally the, they win the Grammy for like one more time. Like that's like yeah, but it's clearly a different version of one more time than what they're playing. They're not playing a song that has live bass, drums, guitars, and keyboards. Maybe that's how alien instruments sound. They just yeah. look like no. our human instruments. No. I think it's open your third eye. That's a good question. This. Do you open think that the eye. Daft Punk of this universe just released Discovery as a? It's just a cover album of the Crescendals yeah. that Maybe. goes on to great acclaim. I'll say so the, this yeah. isn't their actual. This isn't what the Crescendals music actually sounds like. <laughs> but now hold this on, is... hold on. Yeah, this is not what the Crescendals music sounds like. There's the scene where, uh, where they're supposed to be playing one more time with the orchestra. They're just you're hearing a totally different song. <laughs> That's how alien violins sound, Jesse. <laughs> no, I'm saying <laughs> they're, they're, they're on playing Earth at that one point. more time. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the song that the hit. Water. The song that it's a hit by them is One More Time. The song that they play while I they are getting ter- turned into the crescendo, this crescendo. Listen, yeah. I had brief technical difficulties, so I couldn't jump. Yeah, I I, I, yeah, I, I, I called a- out to you, and then you weren't there. You were a void. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I just... Yeah. Did, did you have any like yeah, t- t- talk knowledge some, or takes, Emilio, stuff, that you Emilio. want to impart? Okay, so this is what, 03, right? So... Yeah. This is a couple years after Discovery comes out. And Discovery <laughs> yes. is like... Obviously, their first album was Homework in 1996. I mean, if you want the whole history of Daft Punk, mm-hmm. there were a band called Darlin in the early 90s with the, the Guillaume and uh, Tomas. Then they, then that band got bad reviews, so they split up. I mean, they split up with the third person who was in it, who then goes to form the band Phoenix. Oh. And then, yes. I mean... Their name, Daft Punk, comes from a, a review of their music, which called said that they have a Daft Punky sound. So they did. They then take that and sort of go and make the sort of this style of electronic music, which is known as like garage, which is a lot of yeah. like old like disco and funk samples that it, you just get like repeated and syncopated for house music. It's like house music garage is what it's called. Watch Eden for the history of the garage movement in uh, 90s France. Okay. So they they make their their first album, which is called Homework, in 1997. It gets rave reviews, but it's, like, sort of small. It's, like, not a pop hit at all. It's just, like, in the electronic music world, it's, like, a big hit as for, like, Dan Flores. And it's sort of described as, like, a... It's, like, a rock... No, it's a disco, it's like a disco album for, like, rock people. So it's, like, a lot of, like, hard bass and a lot of, like, hard, um, sounds. So they make that album. And in that er- the funny thing to think about is that in that era, they do wear a lot of masks, but they do not wear what is typically considered their current attire of, like, the full robot mask, robot dress. They just wear masks because they decide that, like, oh, we don't really want to be, like, Cap, we don't like want to be part of this whole thing, man. We don't want to be celebrities. We just want to focus on the music. Could he come up with like 
these personas of people who wear masks you can see like them in like emi covers from like the ni- late 1990s where they're just wearing like shimmery reflective stuff then discovery is when like that full aesthetic comes out discovery is the first time where they're like wearing robot masks and the like the robotic thing is what they do and like that sort of like vocodery auto-tuny stuff that jesse is mentioned that not liking that's when it starts of like the sort of vocal template of one more time and uh harder better faster stronger and digital love and sort of and that's where their first like pop hits come like one more time with a big pop hit internationally and they become this huge thing through their aesthetic and like the pop so and so this is sort of their blank check in a funny sort of way that they got to make this like big anime like movie and got get it played at the Cannes Film Festival because they're like the biggest French musicians going at the time. And if I'm correct, Discovery isn't even that well received at first, right? Like aren't the homework heads kind of turned yeah. off by it because yeah, of the I style mean, change? Yeah, for sure. I mean like in the I think in like especially in the like electronic music community and that sort of critics, people like homework more than Discovery. It's Discovery is sort of seen like not exactly like sell out e, but that sort of thing where it's like a completely different sound, not the sort of like pure like chopped up sample uh, house music that homework is. So some people are resistant to it, though I obviously love it. It's sort of the first album that I ever decided to listen to in my journey of getting into music, which is why I have this sort of love for this album. And yeah. if you give me a second, I'm going to go deal with something. You can continue talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's much more to say. Um, it is uh, another one that is on YouTube you can watch. Um, this movie does imply that a Jimi Hendrix is an alien, so. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that where it's like, ooh, the secret history of music uh, is like everyone who's ever been successful is an alien. Um, which is an interesting thought. Um, uh, yes. It's about the appropriation of culture by yeah. a white record executives. Right, I mean, yeah, there's some of that, but then, like, also, like, yeah, there's, like, a little bit of, like, racial stuff, but, like, I don't think it is very interested in delving into that. Um, I will say, I think, I'm not super on board with Jesse's criticism about the singing. I will say my main criticism of the music is that too many of their songs use the coward's way to end a song with the fade out. You need a nice clean button to end a song. Uh, and that's that's my thought on that. I'd normally agree, but this is house music, right? Like yeah, this is sort is of meant how like, else this am I supposed to know when I to transition if you don't put a into a different yeah. like glow stick and you know, thing in a Biza in 2002. <laughs> He might push back against me saying he hates Daft Punk, but I don't think he can uh, push back saying he hates dancing, which That's... is just a- an awful cornball footloose take. <laughs> <laughs> they had a lot of yeah, interesting I mean, ideas in the tiny town of Footloose is all I'll say. I, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's just like, obviously, like, the genre of music they make is spun out of, like, disco, which is a lot of, like, yes. songs that are three minutes long that then have, like, seven minutes of worth of just a beat, just of, like, four on the floor, doom, doom. In 2022 at TIFF, we're all gonna go dancing and drag Andy with us. Look, I'll go if there's like a garage revival, I'll go dance. I'll Uh, I'll drop my bean. No offense to the rest of my (laughs) co-host. No offense to the rest of my co-host, but I would not dance at a place that would let you guys in. (laughs) 
no one yeah. no one would no one should ever see me dance it's yeah it's okay. i'm, I'm saving the world. um yeah moving so forward. next year is i yeah, next speaking year of a movie about is... about bodies getting corrupted by capital exactly next year is a little movie uh this is, you know, a, a, a much storied year in terms of animation at the Cannes Film Festival, right? Because uh, infamously, this movie plays at the, the at the same Cannes that Shrek 2 does. Wow. And you couldn't wow. have two more contrasting approaches to how to do an animated <laughs> sequel, right? I mean, yeah, well, that's true, yeah. I mean, yeah. We can talk rankings maybe after we talk about the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen the Shreks, but uh, <laughs> um, so this is uh, so uh, Mamoru Oshii uh directs a little movie called Innocence. It's just known as Innocence in Japan, and probably uh when it played at Cannes as well because it's sort of meant to be its own thing, but Which then. Is... <laughs> When okay, brought to the United States, when brought to Western markets, you know, distributors were like, you can't, you can't, you can't have stuff that's not branded. So it gets retitled to Ghost in the Shell 2 Innocence, the follow up to his acclaimed 1995 cyberpunk classic. Yeah, I think so. You know, you say cyberpunk. I feel like there's an obvious comparison for Ghost in the Shell 1 to Blade Runner. Yeah. Like um and what is interesting is <laughs> Innocence is very much the Blade Runner 2049 to <laughs> um Ghost in the Shell's Blade Runner and that it is like a very sort of like slow and methodical procedural that like is it rips. I really liked it a lot. <laughs> yeah, where it takes every single um thing uh, you know, it, it takes every single philosophical aspect of the original and cranks it up to 13, yeah. even if it's not a good idea, right? Yeah, that's like, it's insane to think that you would watch this and not watch the first one. <laughs> They're so connected, and like, this movie, both of them are incredibly dense, but this one, like, I would be just so at sea if I had not seen the first one, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to say the least. Um... Uh, I was excited because Jesse was planning on watching Innocence before, like, without watching Ghost in the Shell. And I was really intrigued on what his takes were going to be, but... I was on vacation. Yes, he was on vacation. (laughs) Yeah, I almost did that, and then at the last second, I was like, I should should make sure. I mean, also, me and Colin bullied you into not doing that, but then I... (laughs) Right. Um, But, you know... So, what is the development history behind the original Ghost in the Shell? Okay, so, um, yeah, let, let's start with uh, Ghost in the Shell first, and then maybe contextualize that in uh, Mamoru Oshii's larger career. Because the Mamoru Oshii's career, like, once you understand where Innocence is coming from, I think it takes on an entirely new uh, relevance. Um so it's uh this was originally a cyberpunk manga in like 1998 or did I say 98? I meant 1988 by this guy named Masamune Shiro who did a lot of other like popular cult cyberpunk manga like Apple 
Appleseed. Yeah, that's what it's called, Appleseed. Um, and it's 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 shockingly short for such it's you know insane. a seminal work. Did you read it? Oh no, I thought you were talking about the movie. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> oh no, no. Oh no, no. The movie is also shockingly short. No, the manga is shockingly short. It's only like twelve chapters long. The first movie adapts like three and a half of those chapters, and then um, Innocence is adapted from another chapter of that manga. Except it's set in the middle, so it's just that like, you know, in the manga it's just like, oh, the major is busy with this um, a puppet master case while Bato and Togusa go and do their own little thing, and then yeah. there's uh there's geisha robots uh but then when mamaru oshi directs his adaptation in 1995 i think he makes it entirely his own um he makes it a lot more grim and serious the original manga had this weirdly light tone that is very um uh it's very off-putting to people who are used to other incarnations of the franchise. Like, the major is kind of like the loose cannon cop, right? Where she's always like, oh, man, I can't, ah, whoa. Like, like, hey, hey, why'd you let that guy get away, Matoko? And he's like, don't blame me, I'm on my period right now. Which, Jesus. like, what? Like, you're, but you're a robot. Yeah. <laughs> what? Like, just, just like... All, all this like like ve- very weird like often sexualized humor uh where i think what makes the both of these ghost in the shell films so successful is the fact that they're totally desexualized right um even though you know they feature a lot of naked robot bodies it doesn't really ogle them or object objectify them at all it's very cold and impersonal and i think that sort of contributes to the tone um as you said colin with the 1995 ghost in the shell it's insane that the movie is 80 minutes long what it's so short it just gets in and gets out it really only has like one big philosophical conversation well you know actually a couple but you know there's just the scene in the boat where you know yeah. matoko just wonders like hey am i like really a person if i'm just a robot with a human soul <laughs> you know yeah and there's like you know the big puppet master speech obviously like near the end um and then two is like all philosophical conversation <laughs> yeah um okay so let's talk about mamaru oshi as a whole he has a fascinating career he starts off as a sitcom guy he's the main director for urusei yatsura which is basically just anime bewitched but with hmm. aliens he directs over a hundred episodes of it which is nutso uh, he directs two urusei yatsura movies one is pretty boring but the second one beautiful dreamer says like what if i took this entire sitcom cast and put them into an alternate dream dimension where we constantly like philosophize is that the word we constantly philosophize about like what is the nature of existence when it comes to like parallel realities and dream dimensions 
And fans were so upset that he intellectualized the property. They sent him razor blades and death threats. <laughs> you know, anime fans gonna anime fan, right? Otaku gonna otaku. Um and so he kind of leaves the property shortly thereafter. So, oh man, I'm so excited to talk about this. So the year is like 1983. It has been four years since Lupin the Third, the castle of Cagliostro. TMS is interested in creating their third animated Lupin film. So they turn to Miyazaki, you know, who is director of the previous one and a pretty big architect of the Lupin franchise as a whole. And they want to know, they ask him like, oh, who should we have for our next director and he recommends Mamoru Oshii because he sort of seems young and upcoming so Mamoru Oshii is announced in all of the trade mags as the director of the next Lupin the third movie and then one year later he is very publicly fired from it he is absolutely kicked off of the project and the reason why is because all of his notions for the movie were absolutely <laughs> absolutely insane do 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 you guys have any notion of what i could be talking about here absolutely not okay so among his proposals here's some of, here's some of the things he wanted to include in the movie he wanted the movie to open open up with Lupin stealing an angel skeleton. Okay. It's like that he episode wanted, of the Simpsons. Yeah, he wanted the film to revolve around the construction of a second Tower of Babel, which ends up confounding the world's languages. He wanted the movie to end with, depending on who you ask, Lupin either stealing the concept of fiction or reality itself. Jesus. <laughs> and then... Uh, yeah. It, yeah. Um, Our, uh, the world's then, greatest thief is going to steal a concept. <laughs> and then the final... The final... Con- the final shit. thing... Uh, the final notion, the most radical one of all, is he didn't want Lupin to appear once in the Jesus movie. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Like he's he so good, even the movies of the camera can't catch him. Yeah. Um, but then you know he gets fired, right? Because there is like we're about to start production, and then the producers just look at his storyboards. And they're like, "You can't do this. This would destroy the franchise forever." Um, so he gets kicked off. But that movie is Mamoru Oshii's equivalent of the 1994 Pixar lunch. Because okay. he ends up utilizing concepts from that movie through all of his films over the next 15 years. Like, he uses the uh, angel, you know, the the idea of, like, fallen angels and just, like, the death of spirituality and angel's egg, you know, which is a huge cult classic. He uses the Tower of Babel notion in the Pat Labor films. Dude, what if the police had giant robots? Uh, he and then uh, in for innocence, he uses that final concept. Yeah, major's not in it at all. <laughs> what if I made 
a movie where the protagonist isn't really in the movie at all. Now, has he made the movie where the protagonist steals the idea of fiction yet? (laughs) Seemingly not. I don't know if he ever came up with a way to feasibly do that yet. (laughs) It's up for grabs, Jesse, so I feel like you might be the one to tackle it. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Um, what if you just make a documentary? I mean, sure. <laughs> the Lupin walks in the, in the background. But I, I think it's very telling that after this movie, I, you know, his directorial efforts drop significantly. He only does like one more um, anime film, which is Skycrawlers in 2008, which is terminally boring. Mm-hmm. There, It has Defenders, but I, I think it's so boring. And it's very ugly in comparison to Innocence. Um, and then he's mostly done, like, divinely stupid uh, live-action CG-heavy green screen movies, okay. like Garm Wars, The Last Druid, starring the guy who was a villain in Season 4 of Lost. Uh, oh, what's his we talking Kimi? Yep. <laughs> it, it's it's crazy. The whole thing's on YouTube. You can watch Garm Wars, the Last Druid. Um, so he's no. he's created the blueprint for the career that uh, Stephen Knight now seems to desire. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, yeah. He's he's uh supposed to come back to animation like in the next year or two all of these greats are coming out of retirement but maybe we can talk about that later but hmm. yeah it's uh, after he does innocence he's out he's pretty much out of lupon ideas and um he hasn't done anything to reach the same height since like whether you love or hate innocence you can certainly agree it's a height right <laughs> It's a whole yeah. lot of movie. Uh, yeah, sure. I feel like <laughs> yeah. Andy is like the dissenting opinion here. I mean, yeah, it was like I found it very aggravating as a movie. It was like this is why I quit watching Westworld, like all the time. To- like, oh come on, that sort of like that sort of shit. <laughs> That's not fair. I you, yeah, isn't it? Westworld is so no. I cannot. I yeah. I don't agree with that at all. Westworld is so. Like up its own like mystery box ass like that is not what this is. <laughs> Absolutely, it is what this no. is. is um, I feel like uh, it is much more like a straightforward if, like noir like uh, homage. I mean, I don't know. I could like it. I couldn't follow what was happening. They, there. I mean, yeah. I guess. I mean, it's a lot of like jargon, but I don't think it's like. Sure. I don't think. I, I mean, I guess like the concept of like the not clones or whatever but like the bodies is like westworld adjacent but i feel like right. i mean we're not gonna get into westworld i westworld is like a stinky turd of a show that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah sucks i mean i like Agreed. westworld a little more than i like ghost in the shell too it, but um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if we talk about yeah. uh, jonathan nolan's um yeah. <laughs> the time frames we're gonna be here all day yeah i mean um, it's certainly better acted than westworld ever has what been. <laughs> What are you That's talking like, about? We don't, um, yeah, we, yeah, we. The acting is the best part of Westworld. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, um, what a bar to set <laughs> if that's your best part. Anyway. Um, I... So this movie is uh, the protagonist of this movie, unlike the previous one, or maybe 
you know, you, you could argue the protagonist of this movie is Motoko Kusanagi, but effectively the protagonist of this movie is Bato, who in the previous movie, as well as all other sorts of ghost in the shell spinoff media, you know, like the TV series, standalone complex and so forth. Um, he is always like, kind of like the big, muscle guy who's just bros with motoko right like you know he's always like great work today major glad you didn't shoot me in the head (laughs) except in this movie he's morose he's depressed all he cares about is his uh basset hound oh i guess this is where the palm dog would go if we were doing awards (laughs) yes the dog is very good it's a very well animated dog Uh, i might as well cover it now so uh, Mamoru Oshi includes a basset hound in every single one of his movies. Wow, interesting. Um, one, like, he loves basset hounds. He, uh, you know, he has a few himself. Mm-hmm. He alternatively says that the basset hounds represent him as a directorial force within the mise-en-scene of the movie. Mm-hmm. But another thing he says, which I think is very striking, is that all of his movies are so heightened and um, abstracted from reality, right? Like, there's so many weird concepts and whatnot that you can, like, lose track of just, like, how this could possibly relate to our own reality. But a Basset Hound is just, you know, that that that's grounding, right? Like, when you see a good doggo, you say, oh, wow, like, I can relate to everyone I wanting mean, to yeah. pet this dog, right? And so that's why he always has people petting dogs in each of his films. Mm -hmm. This ties into a great piece of Jesse trivia, which is that uh, as a young child, the first time I saw a Basset Hound, I just pointed at it and laughed. (laughs) 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 Mommy, what a stupid animal! (laughs) They're very. I do think, um, I mean... My only, like, r- real problem, like, I get why Andy probably doesn't like it. It is, like, This is a very dense. easy movie to not like. Yeah. It's, like, it, it can get, like, very dense. I think, like, it's dense in its use of, like, jargon and, like, not dense in its plotting, really. Like, I feel like there's... I mean, it's tough to sort of verbalize. Well, I... Okay, this is my take on it. It's dense because it's pretentious, but I would argue it's intentionally so. You know, as I said before, Bato is normally characterized as this big jocular guy, you know. And now, the only way he can relate to people is by dropping philosophy references. Yeah, that is, like, what I think is, like, the first movie I think is very cool and like insanely well, think, well, well done. I think that to that point I would say like both movies are sort of about like the nominal protagonist experiencing a sort of disconnect from reality that you sort of have to like try to determine whether it is an intentional plot by the villain or just like a natural consequence of the ways in which of alienation. Broke- yeah, this society. Just how, how robotics has affected their body, and just like the connection between the like the difference in connection between just like the physical space you occupy versus the knowledge and memories you have, and that sort of stuff. And it's like 
it's one of the things I found more fascinating about in a sense than the original Ghost in the Shell, which is I guess like a benefit of the time it took, and I guess like the ending of the original Ghost in the Shell sort of hits hints at it of like sort of like the relationship the internet sort of plays into the whole thing because it's funny. I guess this is a long tangent to go on. No, go on <laughs> but, it. But, like, but can, like, I can't even Scarlet... begin to list how many long tangents I've already went on. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, yours have been directly related. This is sort of a dumb thing I'm going to say. <laughs> you but pointed at a dog once. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, <laughs> yeah. like, obviously, Scarlett Johansson remade the Ghost of, was in a remake of Ghost in yes. the Shell. Yes. But it's a funny thing to think about that the ending of Ghost, the original Ghost in the Shell is just Lucy, where she becomes the internet. Yeah. Yes. Which, so it's like sort of seems like tr- to like territory already treaded, but it's just to say that the way Innocence plays with like the way in which because like they're both works of cyberpunk, and like you can go back to like William Gibson and like the board game cyberpunk and all all these different things that exist in that space of just like the main thing behind cyberpunk is like transhumanism and the ways in which both electronics and robotics and now the internet are gonna maybe allow the human body to deteriorate and what that's gonna do to us in a sort of and to our psyche and the way we consider what selfhood is and the ways in which it plays with the way that like major exists in Batu's head and in a sense and the sort of, the sort of like disconnect that he's feeling from himself because he's tied to like these series of memories and experiences that might not be his own, which is like the sort of thing that also Major is experiencing at the end of Goes Into Shell. And I can sort of, I can for sure see cyberpunk and that sort of genre being the fertile ground of a mind whose idea for a movie about a wacky like thief is that he destroys fiction and (laughs) just like use that space to like become pretentious and posture like have these grand ideas about the the history uh, like how humanity's destruction of itself through technology yeah there there's so many like invocations right of like different um of different concepts and i i think what i like about this movie is well i i should say that i previously didn't really think too highly of this movie because i haven't seen it in 10 years i lost saw it when i was like 15 when i was in my initial i'm gonna watch all the important anime phase and this generally has a reputation in sort of like the anime community as being much inferior to the first ghost in the shell but i should say that the anime community is largely pretty anti- intellectual right um you know they're not Much really like the D&D. yeah <laughs> that's not that's really definitely the art house vibe. type but then yeah when i saw it this time i loved it so much and the thing is like you know like oh you know like doesn't matter that they're invoking the old testament like you can just ignore you know their awkward attempts to relate to each other by quoting descartes and still appreciate it on a different level. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like it's a movie about a disconnect that it see that mm. sort of has a disconnected energy from like whatever the plot is or what's happening, which is it sort of an interesting way to go about it. I think 
It's it's sort of a same movie that I appreciate more than like. I don't love the look of it, yeah, especially that... in certain parts. I think the original Ghost in the Shell looks better. I think mm-hmm. the sort of awkward way it uses CGI occasionally. It's just like it looks like a bunch of tsunami intros a lot of times. Yeah, <laughs> that is like the, <laughs> or like the burly brawl. Yeah, yeah. That's like my it, other like hurdle with the movie is like there are some shots where like it will be like that 3D like CGI uh, style for like a brief second and i think it works there but then there's like times where it's like you know the big sort of like attack machine that is like shooting them when they're in like the big mansion uh like doesn't look great and it is like kind of not distracting but it just sort of maybe it just detracts from like my overall yeah appreciation i mean what i was gonna movie. say where i think the cgi does work is like in the I, I agree. Yeah, it's yeah. like it like the cgi cgi is disassociative yeah, right yeah. Um, like in the, one of the highlights of the movie is this parade, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. With all this Chinese iconography, like all these like gods and giant elephants parading about, it's almost entirely in CGI, and it's so like eerie and ethereal. Um, you know, it's kind of uh, you know, uh, uh, to use this 19th century term you know it's like ukiyo a it's pictures of the floating world right yeah. um yeah. but uh yeah. yeah i mean but yeah there's certain like parts of the cgi like the way it does backgrounds and the way it, like whenever it's like the scene i, I specifically think of the scene in like the convenience store where like yeah, that's probably my getting hacked scene. he's like getting hacked and you can like He's, like, shooting at things, and he's, like, picking up, like, dog food or whatever. I feel like that's a very interesting use of, like, the sort of computerized concepts that exist within, um, that like, that medium. But sometimes I'm not as much into it. But it, I think it all, it sort of coalesces into a look, but I'm not yeah. just, like, not the biggest fan of that look, I guess. You can yeah. tell this is, you know... Unlike the first movie, this was fully digital, and I think this yeah. is to this day one of the biggest achievements in um, digital Japanese animation. Yeah. Um, though, even though this inspires him to like four years later in two thousand eight, he goes back and tries to animate. He he George Lucas's Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, that's um, what. Yeah, he. He releases Ghost in the Shell 2.0, which is largely, it's pretty much the same movie, except now it has an orange filter and random scenes are CGI. And it's just like, it's the CGI is bad. It's just like a worse version of the original. Uh, you know, maybe in transitioning, talking about the CGI animation here, I don't know if anyone has any final thoughts. But, uh, actually, uh, could we quickly talk about the end? Go um, for it, yeah. Because I just, uh, you know, we talked about this a bunch and we haven't mentioned the fact that this movie is about murderous robo geishas <laughs> right yes. um which i i found it like really remarkable basically the idea is you have these gynoids you know these sex robots who are kind of going on a rampage and killing their clients but you know it's all very hush hush because nobody wants to prosecute then, anyone yeah. for the fact that t- t- you know these people are being killed by sex robots um and what astounded me throughout the entire film like i said the first ghost in the show works because of how desexed it is and likewise i think a lot of directors in mamoru oshi's position would have like had some scene where like a sleazy guy is like going at it with um 
you know, these robots and, you know, going out of their way to, like, make these robot geishas all sexy and whatnot. But instead, um, Mamoru Oshi uses the designs of uh, Hans Balmer, who is this German artist who makes these, like, really creepy, unsettling dolls. Um, and he just, like, uses those, like upsetting knobby bodies as the models instead you know yep. and then, uh, yeah I, yeah it's like desexualized is certainly a way to put it i would put it as like both movies as being not lurid is the way i would describe it like yeah yeah there is which is some like, element of understanding these bodies as like sexual objects but it's not like it's it's an empathetic understanding of them rather than like a very like ah oh, look at how hot these things look yeah. and yes which is like a up. bar that a lot of anime movies don't clear right yeah yeah certainly there's an interesting not any of the ones we watch today but yeah. like just right. you know like a lot of these like anime sketchy anime you watch from like the 80s and 90s are just like very you know d- not woke on yeah that front, let's say there's a uh, there's an interesting art or essay on uh bright dark room about this movie uh by Teresa hotel as how i'm guessing this is pronounced uh but it touches on specifically the like representation of like these robots from a perspective of this as like a noir story which i yeah. find like very interesting and like how it you know uh, like a noir movie with like a case of like murderous sex workers could be something that like you could picture like you know that they're all just like working in this thing and then the way that it you know as you guys are saying sort of desexualizes them this art, uh, essay touches on a bit and I think it's very uh, worthwhile read and I wanted to shout it out um, and then at the end of the movie the big you know the big horrible twist is that like the reason why these gynoids are sort of like freaking out and like killing people and self-destructing is because they aren't really robots at all like you know they're mechanical bodies but um, the villains are using this horrid process of basically they're trafficking young girls and then copying their souls yeah. into the robots so that, you know, the sex robots are more lifelike, right? And it's just, like, such this, such a horrible perversion of just the notion of life, right? That they have no choice but to kind of rebel and and just, like, lash out at um, everything. And I, I think that, you know, I, I feel like, uh, sex trafficking is like such a big part of noir you know we live in a post epstein world and i feel like you know trafficking is like one of the easiest ways that people both like in fiction and in real life signal just like a decadent dying society right that can't care for the people who fall in between the cracks um yeah yeah and i think that's certainly like Something that both also both Blade Runners play with, and something that like sex workers play and not often play a part in that sort of cyberpunk yeah. milieu. Because I think it's very interesting to just see like people are often the most human when they are being robbed of their humanity, and yeah. whether that is like in the literal sense and like stories we see told in real life, or in like the cyberpunk sense of like what does a human body mean and what does humanity mean. We can see that like when you try and take it from people and when you try to like 
rob people of their sort of placement as like an equal in society then that is when they will strike back and they and mm -hmm. things will go not as planned and things will go terribly and i think that is sort of the interesting angle of what the ending of this movie is doing of just being like these things that we assumed were blowing up through just like these sort of nefarious purposes of like they think it's like maybe terrorism or like maybe these planned attacks or like maybe these sort of things they quickly they at the end figure out of like no these are were just people who are fighting to get noticed who are sort of being used like maybe unwittingly by i guess it doesn't go into like how aware the people using the sex robots were uh were of like the process behind it but yeah there were they are certainly complicit in a sort of society which allows people to get used in this sort of way and they are fighting for that sort of humanity in a way that major sort of fights for whatever the opposite of humanity is at the end of Ghost yeah. of the Shell, the, the first one one thing that i thought was really interesting about the manga chapter that this was based off of is that at the end it's made pretty explicit that the traffic girls are filipina um which is a detail you know in filipina girls are one of the most highly trafficked uh uh populations in japan right um so i think it has like this specific social commentary uh that sort of gets cut out of innocence and like you could argue that's to make it like more generalized like this could apply to any society not just japanese society yeah, yeah. um to the next yeah. one yeah i think we, yeah, we, yeah. we, yes, we gotta get going guys yeah yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, some of us have been tuned out for a while no oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay well finally we'll we'll move on um uh, so this next 10 years is a really fertile time for uh, anime in film festivals, but not at Cannes, but at Venice. Yes. Venice yes. becomes uh, like the single hotspot for all Japanese animation in film festivals, yeah. or I should I know, say European I, film festivals. I know like Pao's Moving Castle played Venice, Paprika the Satoshi Kon movie played Venice. Yeah, so it's like they give, they start off by giving like uh, Miyazaki this lifetime award in 2004, and then they manage to scout. Wait, what's the. Is scalp the right word? The scoop? Yeah, they manage yeah. to scoop every single anime director of note for the next 10 years. They get all of miyazaki's subsequent films mm -hmm. all of mamaru oshi's subsequent films they bring um you know uh, katsuhiro otomo uh makes his follow-up to akira which took him like 16 years to make steam boy they get that they get in all of his subsequent films like his live action mushishi adaptation rintaro's final film uh fucking um <laughs> Tales of Earthsea debuts there, okay. even though that's bad. It's just, uh, yeah, all of, all of these different directors. Um, and then Wind Rises come out in 2013, and then it all evaporates, right? Uh, because once Miyazaki's not making movies anymore, I, I feel like uh, Japanese animation is taken less seriously on an awards front. And it feels to me like um you know 
Princess Kaguya comes out, you know, which is supposed to have come out at the same time as uh, Wind Rises, yeah. but since Asao Takahata is a perfectionist, it took much longer to make. Um, and it feels to me like Can is just like, oh crap, uh, we better, you know, we like we better honor this last film by Takahata, you know, because the uh, this whole phenomenon is gonna disappear within the next year or two hmm. um yeah it, it certainly like again this the can perspective seems to be well this is the coronation of a great filmmaker this is like sort of mm-hmm. his final song, thing yeah. his swan song this big thing so we should yeah. might as well bring it in it's very rare that a director comes out of retirement like 20 like like 15 years later his previous last film was my neighbors the yamadas in 90 99 i think uh, maybe 97 to 98 um and he like intentionally just like went into retirement to live out his golden years but he said i'll make this one last movie to prove that i'm one of the greats and, and he, wow and he did it yeah <laughs> he did i yeah. think like we can universally agree that this is probably like the single best film we watched for yes. today, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's maybe one of the single best films ever made by human beings on planet Earth. It was on <laughs> Emilio's uh, best of the decade when we did our episode on that. Yes. Uh, did we say the title? Colin, you're the per- you're the person I have not heard any thoughts about I on mean, it. Yeah, it's just it's incredible. Like I don't know like what I'll be able to say about it that maybe at this point hasn't been said just culturally. Uh, but I, it's just it, like astonishing. Like it, one of the most consistently enjoyable movies I think I've ever seen. There's like no dips at all. Like I know Andy was saying that like maybe I'm you know misattributing this quote. You said it kind of like peaked for you at this like running scene mm-hmm. when she like uh, runs from like the uh, the capital back to the countryside. I yeah. feel like there's no peaks, no valleys. It is just you know ten out of ten throughout the entire movie. I like was it was just a jaw dropping experience. It's just so gorgeous. I've like never seen anything that is this just beautiful as like a piece of art. Like maybe th- like I had a very similar experience when I watched Bo Travai for the first time. Just like in watching it and being like, this is art. This isn't a movie. This is art. Like, and uh, it's just something that I, I was expecting to like it. It's like a movie I've been putting off. Not putting off, but just sort of like waiting on watching for like, you know, five years basically at this point, six years, like depending on when I had heard of it. And it's just like incredible. I really cannot be more into this movie. It's like 100% the best movie we watched. Yeah, I mean, it's so, I don't want to say unique looking because I guess you could point at other things that are like trying to do this sort of jet. But not very many things. Yes. There's only one other set of films that looks like it, and it's these these, uh, films done by Chinese director Tei Wei in the, like, 60s through 1980s, which are these short films in the style of uh, Chinese inkbrush paintings, uh, which are just absolutely gorgeous, like Tales of Mountain and Water. Um, and so forth and i recommend anyone who enjoyed kaguya to check those out because they go even harder into this aesthetic but in like japanese animation like no i don't think anyone has come close to replicating 
this look and maybe never will again. And it's like a relatively simple story. It's like just, I guess, you know, it's folklore, you know, Japanese folklore. Right, yeah, it has the, that real, like, yeah, that bedtime story sort of like, yeah, storybook energy that I think and is... And it's just like, it's just incredible. Like, I really... Yeah. I, it's like, it's, I, yeah... I think it's incredible so, that they're able to sustain it for that whole runtime too. Like no, normally, that type of movie is like ninety minutes and out. But yeah, they the it's tale like over of two the hours, it literally felt like a you know like a blink. Like it's just there's no lulls in it at all. I think. So the tale of the bamboo cutter is, by many accounts, the oldest single work of fiction in Japanese culture. And it has roots in the tenth century. You know, and you can kind of connect it to uh, equivalent Western tales like, you know, like Thumbelina or what have you. Um, But, you know, it's it's definitely a story that, you know, every Japanese person would know. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know that everyone would know. Um, And I think knowing the ending impacts the way you watch the film significantly. Um, because I feel like to a lot of Western viewers who are watching it for the first time, like the last 20 minutes might seem a little bit out of nowhere, right? Like they've sort of hinted at it a little bit, but, um, but like once that happens, you're like, oh God, what's happening? Um, you know, spoilers, Kaguya gets poochied. (laughs) Yeah, um, she, she gets taken back to her home planet. Which is the moon. She goes, she, she's from the moon. Yeah, yeah, but um, uh, this uh, Takahata had been wanting to make a Kaguya movie since 1960, since he started working in the animation industry. He pitched one to Toei, which, you know, he worked at all at the time. You know, they were doing, yeah, yeah. they did Legend of White Snake. They did a Journey to the West film. They were making all these movies based off of a classic legend. So he pitched it. They rejected it. And over the next, you know, like 50 years he was trying to figure out how to crack the story because whenever he listened or like whenever he listened to the tale he thought you know it's very hard to empathize with princess kaguya because these events that happen to her are so like otherworldly that you know it's hard to connect because like uh the story is largely just like she is born she like immediately grows up yeah, then yeah. you have like the five people who are trying to uh wed her yeah that's right, like yes. the bulk of the tale is describing their exploits and then you know the emperor tries to woo her and then she poochies um right and well so- yeah i think I, well and i guess yeah the more important element i feel like that i got out of it was, was like yeah the 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 lifestyle shift that she also goes through from like w- after she is born she is like among like poor like country folk and then like goes to like be this like recognized as royalty and lives sort of that that elevated lifestyle and so the contrast of those two things also is an important element of the story yeah so like takahata designed this film to be like to finally make the definitive kaguya movie where you fully empathized with her and you like you understood all the pathos behind her, yeah. And I think he succeeded ten thousand percent, right? There was uh, only I mean, really yeah. ever one uh, other like big film adaptation, which was uh, a a nineteen eighty seven film by Kone Ichikawa called Princess of the Moon, um, which is it's weird. 
uh, you know, the this acclaimed, you know, the Venice darling Kon Ichikawa. He directs this movie where Kagi is like this creepy girl with blue contacts who does like kung fu moves. Then at the end, she leaves in a spaceship. <laughs> you know, and like that's the best we had. And of course, the legend of Kaguya gets referenced in a lot of other media, like Sailor Moon, of course. Um, I referenced off mic earlier that Kaguya is inexplicably the final villain of Naruto. <laughs> uh, just out of nowhere. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, from what you're saying, like, what he sort of adds is like, her relationship with the, you know, um, I don't have the name, um, like the, uh, the guy who like sort of grows up with her, like, Oh, uh, Stemaru? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, like maybe that's something like from what you're saying, that's like something that he added that isn't like, yeah, a a lot of this is stuff of his own invention, but it, I think he did a really great job of yeah uh, fleshing out the story did you guys watch this i i imagine all of you watched this on hbo max right i did uh, i mean i i, I wanted to, uh, that's but, okay yeah we yeah you know yeah. I, I don't have hbo max in germany that's yeah. oh that's that's okay you know i'm you know there's no shame in anime yeah. piracy i genuinely believe I, that sure um but like did you guys watch this subbed or dubbed i watched uh, the subtitles, subtitles. I watched, after I finished it, I was like, I wonder how bad the dub actually was. And I saw that it was Chloe Moretz and Darren Chris as the leads. I was like, oh, this is brutal. No, the dub's really good. Yeah, it seems, oh, no. that seems fine to me. Uh, they, I no, mean, but the, what I watched, it was tour not Tour de Force, good. the Tour de Force um, uh, 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 performance of the dub is James Can as the oh, bamboo yeah. cutter. I yeah. did not see any scene with uh, with him. In it. Well, it's worth checking out. It's um, I think I w- I watch Ghibli films both subbed and dubbed, right? I think they both have their own, um, you know, benefits and takeaways. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that's fair. Obviously, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Something else that I thought a lot about when when watching this movie was a, maybe a little bit bigger picture of like. It's, you know, it's the tale of Princess Kaguya and, like, the, the, the idea of princesses in animation uh, and also, like, larger, like, the stories that we tell and, like, who the protagonists are, I thought a lot about. Um, I think, you know, it's, it, it's very interesting, like, how much of animation, both, like, Japanese and American, is, like, where many of our, like, female-led stories are told. Um, very mm-hmm. often still by male directors, um, but but still like that is like a, a, very often where you find a, 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 a higher percentage of stories that are like about women as the leads. Um, and I, I, I think, yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting like gender stuff, I think, in this in this movie that I that I that really prompted me to think about in, in, in the larger context of like animation, both like American and Japanese as a whole. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know a ton about Japanese. I, you know, I like know like Miyazaki plus like a couple other other things, but yeah, there's you know, there's a lot of of, of female led stories there that I think um, it's 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 interesting that you you see these stories of like trying to find what what your place in the world is and trying to figure out who you are and where you belong and like rejecting things that society puts on you and and which society you ultimately end up a part of that I I thought was like it was that that sort of stuff that it prompted me to like ruminate on I was like really excited to like get a chance to think about that stuff 
Yeah. yeah, this movie really talks about just like how cruel it is to be a woman in Heian period. Um, yeah. In the Heian period. All, yeah, court, all this stuff with her right? like have, not being able to see the suitors and like the way yeah. that she has to like come up with like this like this this weird quest for them in order to like have any sort of agency in who she ends up uh, marrying and all that sort of thing. And this was just a one-off line, but um, all these guys are polygamous. All these guys yeah, have they, multiple yeah, wives. wives. Yeah. yeah. Um, and being a uh, a Heian period, because I I specifically note the Heian period because um, the Heian, which is like like nine hundred through twelve hundred or so, is this period of like it's the height of uh, art in nobility culture this is basically a pre-samurai period which is why you don't see any samurai at all this is pure court shenanigans the emperor has supreme power there's no shogun or anything and it's all about the dynamics of courtliness but the thing is when you're one of these noble women and you get married to one of these lords what it does is it just means you get to live in a house. You don't live in the same house as your husband. You live in an estate all on your own. And you basically just live there until he decides to come calling for you, right? Um, and, you know, when you're in this marriage, this type of marriage, it's all great and lovely as long as he has affection for you. But when he bores of, becomes bored of you and takes on like a younger wife... The only outs you have to get his attention again are either to become pregnant or to shave your head and join a nunnery, which Kaguya mentions offhandedly mm-hmm. uh, in the manga. In not manga, I'm sorry, the anime. Um, and so I think it's very telling that it's when we talk about objectification, we usually mean sexualization. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's like, oh, you know, so and so was objectified because they were put in a bikini. But here there the objectification is pretty literal. They literally want her as a possession, right. as a trophy. And of like, their that's own all they greatness. can think to compare her to as well. Like when they're pitched exactly. to her is like, I will treat you as if you were like this rare treasured object. Yeah. And like, that's supposed to be like, yeah, sign me up for like a life of that. yeah exactly they they just all want her to be the crown jewel in their uh collection um yeah yeah and it's sort of interesting like because andy brought up the comparison to like princesses in western animation in america but it it almost exists as sort of like a refutation of those sorts of movies because all those movies are like well and then she meets a guy and they live happily ever after and this is like a movie about a woman like a girl or woman who so much refuses to like get tied down by a man and be objectified and robbed of her humanity in that way that she goes to her home planet right. on the moon away <laughs> like yeah you, you don't deserve me you people like i'm out like yeah <laughs> and then, yeah even at yeah. the end you know the proposed like let's run away together before they like are flying around and then it's revealed that he also has a wife and kid <laughs> right like yeah. he's got a family, you know. It's yeah, it's it's great to think of, and it's like I think another like great one of the great uh, successes of the movie is the dad character is the bamboo cutter mm-hmm. is like how like the complexity that lie within him of just like obviously he's sort of doing not a great thing for his daughter because he's sort of like 
pawning her off to the highest bidder, but that he also does a good job of just explaining, like, well, that's the sort of thing that happened in that Saturday day, and, like, he wants her to have a good life, and right. to, like, they're poor bamboo cutters, and the only way they understand how to get out of that is by this, like, Taking sort this of, and this, yeah, this terrible form of courtship, and just, like, the understanding of nobility just right. sort of due to, like, the rarity of her, I guess, is, like, the sort of way to understand it. Like, she is a prized possession, so they're, they are suddenly worth a lot. And it's just, like... And it's, yeah, just how empathetic, you know, like, how sort of sad and how... When he's sad, it is. Just, like, the way he he sort of treats her, but also the way... Like, you, just, you like, know he lo- from you know the start, he it's out of daughter. love. Albeit yeah. a misguided kind of love and he loses the thread a bit like in the middle like he is more obsessed and she like calls him out after like the you know sort of like high highest guy in the totem pole is like found interest in her and he's like this is the one and she's like you're more interested in like you know the courtier's head or whatever and uh then like when she's taken away and they sort of like have their final goodbye which is just brutal it, uh, it's like, but the emperor looks like handsome Squidward. Who could yeah. it be? <laughs> who who wouldn't be amazed by him as a lover? Yeah, that scene is also crazy when he like grabs her and she just like like morphs out of his grasp. Man, it's nuts and like disappears. What a movie! Yeah, and yeah, and it it, it is another one where like similar to like jumping. That I think, like, the animation style oh. is, like, so distinctively striking that you spend, like, a f- at least a few minutes at the beginning being, like, how did they, e- like, how do you even, like, accomplish this look? Um, I, I think, I mean, this obviously has the benefit of a, like, longer runtime and, like, a full narrative that you can get invested in to sort of move a little bit beyond that. Uh, but it is, yeah, it's just the look of it and the, the, the way that the animation moves. You know, Cullen briefly referenced that, that running sequence that I thought was, like, the peak of the movie. Not that, like, the rest of the movie is bad in any way, but, like, yeah, yeah. the way that, like, it is able to, like, communicate, like, her emotional state through just the depiction of her physical actions in that sequence, I think is just, like, really, like, it's a stunning, like, stretch of filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. for sure. It's like something that I sometimes just, I spend a lot of time thinking about within the conversations about film is just like the the tie between aesthetics and what a movie is doing on like a story and like plot Mm -hmm. and just mostly a story level and like what it's communicating artistically. And I feel like sometimes people try too much to like make that much of distinction or like get mad at like one perfect shot culture or whatever of like well, this is aesthetically pretty, but is it bringing anything to the movie? And, and a sort of, like, weirdness that I find around certain sections of, like, older film Twitter or whatever. It was, like, any sort of, like, dramatic shift in the way a movie looks or feels is, like, sort of distracting and show-offy. And it's good to have a movie like Kaguya where it's, like, you can't argue that a single frame of what it's doing isn't, like, the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. But it also is working very hard to communicate what the story and yeah. plot of, right. of, of, of uh, what this person is going through artistically. Yeah, it never forgets that, like, content is dictating the form. And so, like, that relationship is, like, so clear in, in the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. You it's know, a movie it, that looks pr- pretty for pretty sake. Is, I guess it's yeah. just a simple way to put it. 
you uh, equated this to a jumping Andy in that this is sort of something that only someone at the very top of their game could do. And I especially agree with this one because I don't think there will be the circumstances behind this production Mm -hmm. ever again, budget wise, like for comparison, like normally, you know, your, your normal cheap anime film is like under produced for under $10 million dollars. Uh, Ghibli movies, you know, and other sort of like very high budgeted stuff go from like fifteen million dollars to thirty million dollars. With like Mizaki's most expensive movies, like Ponyo and Wind Rises, maxing out at thirty million dollars. And in comparison, this cost fifty million dollars to make. Wow. Uh, yeah. It is the most expensive Japanese animated film of all time by a long shot. That's not including CGI movies. I'm going to. Uh, you know, tactically ignore those, but um, uh, you know, there will never, and you know, this puts Ghibli in a huge financial drought for the next decade. You know, yeah. to this day, right? Because this okay. film was relatively disappointing, um, in Japanese box offices, and then the subsequent movie when Marnie was there, um, wasn't you know that much of a box office splash either. Yeah. Um. They um. That's, Go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, no. And it's just like that's why they've sort of been in recession this whole time. They sort of go into it in the documentary, The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, where it's like simultaneously they're making, uh, Studio Ghibli's making this and Miyazaki's The Wind Rises as like these two, you know, at the time, swan songs. You know, Miyazaki has a movie supposedly on the way, and, you know, Takahata has passed away since then. But. Uh, of like both of them sort of making these movies at the same time and both of them like there's like a scene where they're sort of like uh, announcing what the movies are going to be and they're like Kaguya is still not done (laughs) and it's like it's going to take a while and yeah you know it makes sense why they're like hand painting every single shot in the movie you know every single panel or whatever it is frame yeah um uh I, I want to add before we leave Princess Kaguya that, you know, there is a lot to be said about how Shinto many of Miyazaki's films are, right? Especially Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke, about how they're all about maintaining balance with the world and the environment. Um, and in contrast, Princess Kaguya is one of the most deeply Buddhist movies sure. I have ever seen. Um, it's all about attachment, right? Mm-hmm. It's about attachment and um, ephemerality. The there is this, you know, there is this uh, Japanese concept that plays in you know a lot of Buddhist poetry and whatnot called mono no aware, which means an awareness of the ephemerality of all things, the deep sadness yet relief of knowing that everything you love or don't love everything in the entire world is going to just vanish and disappear and will die sooner or later um and this whole movie is built around the knowledge that kaguya is gonna disappear um despite all her happiness all her misery she is just going to vanish one day and it's just about the engines of you know causing the deep dread of when her time is up uh yeah 
and then you know you have the people of the moon they're just sort of this perfect buddhist society with no attachment to anything but you know it makes this argument that even though you know the attachments that kaguya has on the face of the earth on this mortal plane are painful in their own ways they're also beautiful and there is beauty in that pain Quite, quite a movie. Well worth a yeah. watch, I would say. Streaming on HBO Max if you have it. Uh, yeah, check it out. Full Andy, full Andy recommendation on this one. Wow. <laughs> First time ever on our podcast. I, yes, I mean, I guess I maybe... Uh, I'm going to retroactively give that to the BFG as well. <laughs> Talk about checking off a box. Uh, um and speaking of movies about the difficulties of growing up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's move on to our You're final right. film. Yeah. A yes. f- pretty fun movie. <laughs> yeah, so I I hypothesize that we're maybe going to enter a new boom of film festival anime soon. Because, you know, so you have uh, Princess Kaguya that sort of ends anime at film festivals you have some like one-off things you know you have some oddities you have the uh, the cgi leiji matsumoto movie space captain harlock that plays out of competition in uh uh in venice you have the likewise cgi gantz zero made by the resident evil degeneration guys which is a deeply weird movie like it's just like this utter schlock in a good way that plays out of competition um you have the red turtle um that plays in when it's in uncertain regard right and it wins yes um which is like technically a ghibli film but you know it's like why talk about it when it's really more of a you know a francophone production in you know directorially and um in style uh you also have Dutch director yes okay yeah i actually that makes a lot of sense i i i just assumed in my mind he was belgian but what's his name like didoc dewitt that's yes I believe that's so. a, a very dutch name so i'm sorry for <laughs> uh, <laughs> miscountrying him um uh uh you know they're uh tatsumi which is this 2011 um indonesian movie which is based off of a manga and it's sort of done in an animesque style but like i said it's not a japanese production the director and production crew are entirely indonesian um let's see and that sort of covers just about everything but then anyway in 2016 your name comes out right and your name is the first time you have had an anime film be a global phenomena on par with spirited away in quite a long time and it seems that it's opening up the uh the possibility for anime to play at film festivals again most notably this one mirai which is by mamaru husoda who has been doing great work for years but this is the first time he's ever been at one of these film festivals and i think i suspect it's a reaction to your name um in g kids sort of establishing their mm-hmm. position as the single-handed 
uh, proprietors of all international animated films. Sure. Because this was the movie that I tried to see at Cannes, and then I wasn't in the right line with the right credentials, so I didn't get to, but it was presented by G-Kids. My plan was to see the movie and find some G-Kids executive and beg them for a job. That fell through. <laughs> uh, but please, G-Kids, hire me. I've been wanting to work for you for 10 years now, <laughs> since Ernest and Celestine. Um but yeah so we have uh now we have mirai or in japanese mirai no mirai mirai of the future it's a pun uh have you guys seen any of mamaru hosoda's other stuff no like summer wars girl uh, who left through time girl who left through time yes Yes, i i watched that in a class uh many years ago that's a fun movie yeah that was his first original film i watched uh i've watched wolf children and i love it yes um, but the thing is, what the, he originally cut his teeth as a Toei director. He is most known for doing the two two of the three films which would eventually constitute Digimon the movie. Hey. Um, except the thing is, when you watch the movies in Japanese, both movies are like both the movies he directed are like 25 minutes long each which is why they like combine them together and try to pretend that they were one narrative when they really aren't you can tell uh you know he has this strong uh uh life-based directorial style from the outset like even if you're not a digimon fan which i'm not i i had a great time watching these films uh he from doing those movies he then gets drafted to be the director of Howl's Moving Castle. And then Miyazaki fires him because he do- didn't do because he wanted to direct it his own way, right? Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Which is like kind of like um you know, it's this irony where like I I feel like so many of these directors are defined by either like following exactly in Miyazaki's footsteps, which is sort of this safe career path but it sort of gives you a career of doing like Miyazaki-esque things like Kitaro Kosaka and, um, you know, Hiramasa Yonobayashi and so forth. You know, um, Yoshifumi Kondo before he died, you know, directing Whisper of the Heart. Or you bounce off of him and do your own thing entirely. And so he bounced off. He gets fired from Howl's Moving Castle. Um, he does a One Piece movie also for Toei, which is like the best One Piece movie. It rules, even if you're not a fan of One Piece. Um, but then he starts doing his original films, and all of them are sci-fi family dramas. Well, Girl Who Leapt Through Time isn't really a family drama, but they're all sci-fi dramas that explore interpersonal co- relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Wolf's Children is very much that. There's very, like... You can see a clear line between like Wolf Children and this movie, which are the, and Mirai, which are the two I've watched. Of just like sort of taking a sci-fi con- sci-fi like context to explain like the pains of growing up and just like the pains of yeah. father of like motherhood and fatherhood and the, like the, those sorts of relationships, which I very much enjoyed. Though I, I I will say that I was sort of not super into Mirai in comparison to Wolf I Children. I think. Mirai is it is it is very few people's least or what am I trying to say it is very few people's favorite Hosoda 
film. That would usually be, it's usually wolf children or summer wars. And some people say like girl who left through time and even fewer say boy and the beast. You know, you could argue that Mirai is the worst of all of his films. But I think, you know, the fact that this movie, which is like a pretty good movie, is the worst of all of his films. Yeah. Is just highlighting how effective he is as a director. Right. Yeah. It's uh, the only one of his that I've seen. And uh, I had a pretty good time with it. I like like. A, a few things I like. It starts off with like this very sitcommy opening, and it's got like a great song uh, as they're like going through the opening credits or uh, whatever. And it was like I was like, yeah, this is like a, a fun bum, vibe. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, it's like but but up up whatever and happened to <laughs> predictability or whatever. <laughs> the the paperboy, yeah, exactly. the um, But it uh, it's got like that vibe, and like Amelia was saying, it's like the sort of sci-fi contextualization of like growing up or whatever um it felt a bit like to use a jesse term some pixar bullshit of like oh you're a kid and you like go back in time and ride a uh you You know learn all the lessons you're supposed to yeah you ride a motorcycle with your grandpa and you learn like that's how your dad's teaching you how to ride a bike or whatever (laughs) and it's like oh you go back in time and like hang out with your mom as a kid and realize that you know she used to be fun and she's like just trying she's to be a good mom her, now yes, yeah. like it's get some stuff like that like which is like maybe a little weak but i think what it really has going for it are these like animation flourishes and like editing flourishes where like specifically like uh, the scene i just mentioned like where he's like learning how to ride his bike there's a scene where he's like on the bike and he's using this lesson he's learning he's like you have to picture the point that you're going to and it's just like this weird like hard like cut in cut out of like the like thing he's focusing on and it like goes small goes big and i was like whoa 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 this is insane and like the way that the movie is set up is like he'll the kid will like do something and then sort of like reset like it'll have like this sort of fantastical adventure and then reset back and i think that kind of hurt it a little bit for me yeah even though i i think i'm like the most positive on it of like the five of us like I had like a fine, like a really fun time with it, and it was like a very easy watch. It's like not a long movie at all, and yeah. it like looks nice, and it blends sort of animation and uh, styles in a way that I found pretty interesting. Like I know it's people, like there's the, like the lesson is always don't be a sociopath, which yeah. is like one of <laughs> those things where bastard. like <laughs> no, like I I like I recognize that that's legitimately how it works in real life. Like I admire how committed this movie is to giving like a super realistic four-year-old protagonist but at the same time it's very grating just because kids are sociopaths and he acts like one (laughs) and it takes him quite a few times before that lesson sticks yeah 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 Yeah, that's sort of like why i was not super into i was i found it like grating i found the i watched the sub of it and i found the sort of japanese voice performance of the kid a little weird he sounds like five years older than he's supposed to which i sort of just lent itself to the gradingness of of effect of this like he even talks like he should get these things and he doesn't and it just annoys me a bit but it's colin said this one's very interesting like there's some great like visual and editing flourishes He's a great visual filmmaker in that yeah. way. There's a sort of famous, like, sort of tracking shot in Wolf Children mm-hmm. of, like, the passage of time through these two 
these two like through the perspective of these like two classrooms that is like great and people should watch and there is some of that sort of stuff here especially how it uses the house setting of it yeah i so i will my history is this was nominated for best animated feature at the oscars in the era Mm -hmm. in one of it in the era since I've been trying to do like the Oscars death race every year where I see everything. It is the first non Ghibli anime film to be, to actually make it to the final cut. Yes. To be in the, in the final. So I, I originally saw it back then uh, in theaters and I like, was like, it was like three and a half stars. This is pretty good. I think like the, like the more fantastical elements are like a little obvious and like not real, like it's not particularly deep. I don't think like, I, I think it has like, it has like clear thematic ideas and like, but they're not particularly like exciting or insightful ones. I don't think, and I think it like presents them well and investigates them, uh, in in a fairly interesting way. But it's like it's like okay, like I get it. Like you're you know this 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 doesn't feel like particularly insightful or like mind blowing to me. Um, I I rewatched it with in the run up to this. I remember back then that uh, Emily Vanderwerf had tweeted that, like, the dub was particularly good on this one. So on the rewatch, I did watch it with the dub on Netflix. Uh, and I did, I think it, it helped me a lot, actually. I liked the dub a lot. Um, I, I think I liked it a lot more. It did help the characters uh, come to life a little bit more for me. I still do feel like a lot of the, like, like the humor and stuff is, like, pretty basic and obvious sort of, like, jokes um, but but I, I I do I I came away liking it a lot more the second time around and really appreciating especially yeah that those animation sequences that last sequence of like all the train stuff I think is like really cool with like um uh all, just this the 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 in this sheer scale of the station uh, in like the last fantasy sequence um yeah I mean I th- I again I think it, I think it's a pretty fun movie. That like I don't necessarily think about a ton, and like it does like I don't think it is particularly like deep, but I think you know it it, it has some fun stuff in it that is is you know it's worth checking out. Yeah, yeah, I speaking of the train sequence at the end, I think that this film, you know, I was talking earlier about how it was really good at uh, capturing you know toddlers, and I think it was really good at capturing toddler psychology, especially in terms of primal fears, yeah. like how a lot of the things in the movie were scary for a toddler you know just the idea of being lost like right. that's what drives the last 25 minutes yeah. is the fear of being right. lost and not and like, knowing who you are like in a very like basic sense of like i don't know my but just like the the ultimate threat is that he has to like get on a spooky train right. and he's like no i don't want to get on the train when it's like that looks like the most awesome roller coaster right. well I've and he's like a kid who's in the get on the train too. like he like loves yeah. his train action figures and stuff so um yeah some interesting stuff there definitely uh yeah it's i i really admire the way uh i i think that in terms of life animation that is to say animation that tries to accurately recreate like the minute details of life which you know Miyazaki is uh, always a big advocate for I think that Mamoru Hosoda is one of the best in the game at that um, you there are so many small details that are included especially in the way it portrays children that yeah uh you can tell that he brought in his own kids for the animators to sketch all day and that work yeah. really shows 
a big thing is like the crying that like the tantrum sequences um are just uncomfortably realistic mm-hmm. i i think that in general mamaru hosoda in all of his films there's always a crying sequence and it's always deeply uncomfortable because it's not like it's not the crying you normally see in any sort of cinema you know tears like why would you do this it's always like bawling snot dribbling just people like like whining from the bottom of their lungs and it's just like you just don't want to be there it's it actually when coon throws tantrums in the movie you actually feel like you're present for a bad toddler who's (laughs) exactly you know who won't pick up his trains which again it's like that's what the film's going for but it's also grating yeah right um uh also can we say that this is like the least child-proofed house that has ever existed Uh, it's yeah it's very like modern (laughs) architecture it is like i get that the parents are architects (laughs) or the dad's an architect but it's like the home is built entirely around ledges with right. you know like small staircases with five foot sheer drops yeah and it's a miracle that the kid just doesn't eat shit every day yeah. you know come on <laughs> advocating for a child to injure Hey, listen. Yeah, I got stitches in my head from when I was. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I certainly, I, I fell, I've fallen off steps and, and fucked up my front teeth and stuff. It's part of part of being a kid. Uh, so yeah, that's Kaname. Kaname, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess we should also say they did announce there was to be one. The Goro this year. Miyazaki, yeah, right. The yeah. Goro was going Old to be Goro was included in their Kuma. lineup. Uh, obviously, has not been released yet, so we did not watch yeah. it for this. Um, a 3D so, animated. Yeah, so Goro is doing his own. Um, he he's doing a CGI film, which is weirdly it's it's not even like a theatrical movie. It's like supposed to be a TV movie, and it was from the start. He's making it for like NHK TV, which I think it's supposed to premiere there in december so we've only seen stills so stills, far yeah. yes we haven't are, seen uh, uh interesting uh, to look at someone on twitter called it papa yes papa looking ass animation <laughs> <laughs> eating sugar yeah. no papa um yeah I, there's a couple of stills that i'm like oh that looks interesting but then like several of them i'm like oh boy what are you doing here um yeah so it's cgi in japan has had a very mixed history of cgi because uh from the start japan's whole thing was to aim for realism rather than stylization which has led to uh you know it led to final fantasy spirits within which lost a hundred million (laughs) dollars you know so um Except the thing is, nowadays, uh, when uh, Japanese CGI animation is going for realism, it's really good. Like, uh, I mentioned previously Gantt Zero, which is, like, this really schlocky action film um, that has, like, just absolutely magnificent, just, like, action CGI. You know, like, this CGI Resident Evil movies as well. 
um, the space Captain Harlock movie they made. But in the terms of family-friendly stylized CGI, it's like it's such a new uh, it, it's such a new frontier. And really, the only guy who has been doing good work there so far is uh, let's see, what's his name? It's uh, it's the Stand by Me Doraemon guy. Uh, he did that. Uh, he did, yeah, uh, yeah, Takashi Yamazaki. He did Stand By Me, uh, Doraemon in 2014, which was the second highest grossing movie of that year behind Frozen. Um, and, you know, if you know how big Frozen was yeah. in Japan, like, that's, like, a huge big deal. Uh, but then he also did Dragon Quest Your Story last year, which is very pretty but not good and then he did the lupon the third oh the uh, new one cgi movie yeah, yeah so he's like i i i think he's like the only guy so far who has really cracked how to make anime style designs look good in cg uh g kids currently has the right to um the rights to that movie i'm very tempted to pirate it because you can right now it's out on dvd in japan but I feel like I should, yeah. you know, I, I, I should wait, yeah. you know, and see that glorious dub, even if CGI dubs are always awkward. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see if Goro can do the same thing. His previous CGI effort was the Amazon Prime anime Ranja the Robber's Daughter, which all looks like PS2 cutscenes. <laughs> uh, so he's improved significantly in the last five years, I guess, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, well... Uh, and with that, yeah. and well, I'll, I'll also very briefly mention that, like, we we talked about that Miyazaki has come out of retirement and has a new uh, film coming, and there definitely is, like, an energy around, since it's been announced, like, we'll get, we'll can get this one finally, and it's like, you know, maybe the smart bet is just that he goes back to Venice, but, like, yeah. there is a thought that maybe can will make a push for this premiere. Yeah, so I, um, just sort of, just like not to keep going, but weathering with you, I saw at Tiff. at Toronto, yeah. right? Yes, as a G Kids thing. Um, you yeah. know, G Kids. I like I said, they have they have played their cards, and they now have the rights to all of the different directors, which is pretty remarkable. Like not just the Ghibli stuff, but like, uh, uh, uh Cone, um, you know, Makoto Shinkai, etc. Uh, yeah. It's uh, and all these uh guys like Katsuhiro Tomo, Mamoru Oshii, they're all coming out of retirement to do one last movie as well. So we'll see if we'll have another, um, you know what's the word? <laughs> yeah. Blanche. We've been going on yeah. for a long time. Yeah. Another explosion of you know final films. Yeah. Um, great. And with that, can we go yeah, into plugs? Let's do it. Yep. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, anything in particular you would like to plug? Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you for letting me on and letting me talk this long. <laughs> I. It looks like this is going to be your longest episode ever, and this is what I secretly. Um, <laughs> Uh, anticipated you know uh, when I went on because I know I can talk about these things at length but the thing is it potentially could have been longer because I made a list <laughs> it potentially could have been longer I made a list of recommendations for 
every single film we made uh we talked about today i had four recommendations that i was going to talk about at length but i converted those into a letterboxed list instead um we'll we'll make sure to publicize that heavily yeah so you can look at you know i was thinking like oh should i pitch them like like we can do like a a 20 minute bonus episode where i just talk into a mic yeah i know like colin's shaking his head I, I i agree with you colin i should not be allowed to do that <laughs> <laughs> but if anyone you know wants to message me on letterboxd and just yeah. say like wow peter you have such great taste in everything <laughs> to which i say i know thank you <laughs> yeah um but the uh i'm not i'm not a twitter person um so i have two things to plug outside my my social media i um i have my own podcast uh, the superhuman samurai cyberpod where we talk about this uh, power rangers knockoff from the mid 90s called the superhuman samurai cyber squad cyber is spelled with an s by the way um we also talk about like various other uh american interpolations of asian culture like we talked about you know kappa mikey and uh, uh enter the warrior's gate which is like the weird luke basson you know chinese co-production that he did um we were gonna talk about mulan except it seems disney's going out of their way to make sure nobody sees mulan ever like i'm not gonna pay 30 bucks for anything <laughs> um but yeah it's a uh, check me out there i'm significantly less intellectual on there it's mostly <laughs> me doing voices much more in vain of my last appearance on this podcast right um i'm also going to plug my youtube channel masked manta which i haven't posted anything there recently but i have a lot of uh stuff in the pipeline like video essays and whatnot which are going to come out soon i'm currently working on restoring well restoring in quotes but there is this isao takahata movie you know director of princess kaguya his most underseen film chie the brat is a masterpiece and it's like almost impossible to find in english uh so i I'm trying to I'm currently trying to get it posted up on YouTube because my thinking is, you know, generally if it's never received an English dub or, you know, English distribution, no one's going to care if you post it up on YouTube. So yeah. uh, hopefully people will get to see that movie yeah. because it is, you know, an underrated masterpiece and it has lots of themes about young girls navigating realms of toxic masculinity that uh, it shares with Kaguya. So. Right. I'm done. Thank you. For, forever. Uh, <laughs> Promise. No, we'll have you back. Yeah. yeah. Go for Absolutely. the three so, Who wants to talk about a, a, a Japanese movies at Cannes in the 1950s? I want yeah. to talk about Jigokumon. Uh, sure. Of course. Yes. You don't have to commit to that. You don't actually I have, mean, don't, yeah. We're, don't we, promise we, that. Yeah, I mean... We'll, we'll look at the schedule and see if it fits in. <laughs> That's what I'll I'll say. Down the road, like eight months in the future, yeah. at the very least. Twenty twenty one. After after the next uh, round of famos. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Jesse. All right. You can find us on Twitter at Can I Kick It. 
You can find us on Letterboxd at C-I-K-I-Pod. You can find me on Twitter at J.P. Glick Weber. Weber has two Bs. Same thing on Letterboxd. And this week, I would like to plug another uh, performance from Fish's Baker's Dozen uh, (laughs) from... from the Boston Cream Donut Night, their medley of songs by the bands Boston and Cream. We have to have an intervention about this. Gross. <laughs> uh, anything else Andy, about that? Yeah. All right. Um, it's great. I, I, yeah, sure. I'm Andy. Uh, you can find me online at Andy T. Germ. You're Andy. I am. I'm Andy. Um, uh, you, I, I guess uh, I will say... One, uh, we haven't been mentioning this. Please give us five stars on, like, Apple Podcasts or whatever. Colin made a joke about giving us four stars, and one of you took him up on it, and that's not cool. Please give change us five stars. Five. <laughs> Colin, tell them to change it to five. Follow your hearts. Colin? <laughs> Colin Two you stars? You don't say what? right now. We rate do not our have podcast time for this. five stars. Give our, episode, or give our podcast five stars, one for each hour of the episode that Thank this you. was. <laughs> Um, yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so please give us five stars. Uh, it helps us out a lot. There's a couple of people who have left reviews. I'm not sure. I don't know who the, that you are, but if you want to make yourselves known, thank you, uh, and we appreciate you. Uh, I also you could do the thing where you uh, read good reviews on the air. Bad podcasting. Uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's true. It is very tacky. Um, uh, I will also. I my weird plug is I've been watching episodes of Cheers every night before I go to bed, so I will plug the idea of watching Cheers. Cool. <laughs> I'm gladly. Oh my goodness! I was just gonna say, if you have sent us a, if you have left us a nice review, we will not read it on the air. But if we don't follow you on Twitter already, we will. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'm gladly on everything. C l a t c h l e y. I'll plug Princess Kaguya. It's the best movie we've ever covered on the podcast. And just to speak to the length of this episode, Emilio did let Ghost in the Shell play as a zoom background. Two times in full. <laughs> so, with that, Emilio, what have you got? Whatever my Twitter is will be on the description of this episode. Just do that. Let's end this, please. Thanks to Tree Related for the theme song. Thanks to Tree Related for the theme song. I'll post his stuff on the description for the episode. Please let us out of here. I will release. Yeah. Our release audience. our hosts. Bye. 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 Farewell. All right. We did it.